in the room with me today, I have Robin Newton, Andy Allen and Alex Eason. And on Starleaf, we have the Vice Chair Kelly Armstrong, Sinead Innes and Mark Durkin. So members, we will then begin and we'll go to our first item, which is apologies. Do we have any apologies? Sinead, have you? Yeah, Okay. Thank you very much, Sinead. Okay, we'll move on to item number two, Chairperson's Business. Members should remember that in last week's uh, meeting advised as part of the updated COVID guidance, committees are asked to consider essential business only for the immediate future. As a result, we have a number of briefings in the diary that I propose that we cancel and ask for written briefings um, firstly. Um, so that would be the departmental briefing on its five-year strategy, the departmental briefing on its 10-year sports strategy, departmental briefing on financial well-being, and the departmental briefing on the definition of affordable housing. Um, I'm just at this stage asking for a written briefing. Um, once we receive the written briefing, if we feel we want an oral briefing, then we can do that. So our members agreed with that? Yep. Okay. Thank you. And then in addition to that, the department has advised that an, the audit office has a draft code of audit practice and summary doc documents ready for the minister. And these documents will be laid by the minister before the 31st of March this year. The committee has been offered an oral or written briefing. And I again propose that on the first instance, we take a written briefing on this also. Agreed? Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, members, um, we had asked Raise to brief on their paper on a high street task force for Northern Ireland. Again, can I propose that we keep this briefing on our schedule, but it takes place when we are able to move back to normal business? Members agreed with that? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, members, we were emailed a copy of the advice to the committee about meetings on the current COVID situation. You would have received um, that email came through. It's just to ask for uh, any comment from members on that, or are they content to note? Content to note? Yep. Okay. Members, on Tuesday, the committee held its second informal stakeholder briefing session on universal credit and welfare reform mitigations. We received brief briefings from the Cliff Edge Coalition, UCOS, Marie Curie and the Women's Regional Consortium. And thank you to the Assembly Engagement Team who facilitated the Zoom meeting. And there is a recording of this. It's a, an oral recording, not a video recording, um, which is available for members should they wish to listen to it. Um, the event, I think, certainly was very successful and the committee team will bring a note to the meeting of full committee in due course and we can decide how we wish to proceed on the issues that were raised. Um, just to say that a, f a third event um, will be organised in due course, but that's not likely to be probably until um, after Easter anyway. Um, Andy, you wanted to come in? Yes, Chair. Um, as you recall, I raised at the meeting uh, and we said we'd bring it up here today in advance of the committee note coming. Can we again write back to the department and ask for further clarity on when we're likely to see the proposals of um, extending and strengthening the mitigations? Um, we're fast approaching uh, the 31st of March deadline. Uh, I'm mindful and cognizant that we as a committee have not seen anything. I'm concerned that um, the minister may be in a position where she will have to deploy accelerated passage. She's neither confirmed nor denied that, um, but um, I'd be concerned if that's a course of action that we have to use. Yeah, I think that was the overall feeling with all of those involved. And also, I think we need to ask the Minister when she's going to um, have the, that, the, the co-design piece with all of those people who are involved. 
um, in, in, in working along with people and also people who are on um, these welfare, in receipt of welfare mitigations. Um, that doesn't seem to have happened other than one meeting with the Cliff Edge Coalition. A lot of the others have not been consulted, so I think we need to ask when that is likely to take place as well. Um, members, any other comment on that? Or are we happy enough to go along as proposed? Yes? Good, okay. Um, let me see, where am I? Okay. Yes, um, I, I was in a. Just want to inform members. I was in a meeting yesterday. I was invited along by another MLA to a meeting with TWM, where they were talking about the um, WICT project, which falls under the Fresh Start um, agreement. It's Fresh Start um, money that that has been running now for five years, and it's under the sort of the tackling paramilitarism. And they have 27 um, projects running across Northern Ireland. They are just very concerned at the moment because there doesn't seem to have been a tender put out for the continuation of these women's projects. Um, and as I say, there are across all of Northern Ireland. They're running and they're very successful in assisting women who um, are, you know, are living still under. And we know we still have the threat of paramilitarism in Northern Ireland. We know from, from recent news reports, certainly, that that is rife. Um, so they're just very concerned. Their funding runs out on the 31st of March. There has been no indication if this programme is going to be funded going uh, forward into the future. So uh, during that meeting, it was highlighted with me, and I had said that I would bring it up today. So would members be content for the committee to write to the minister on this matter for more information on the status of the programme, and if the tender document has been written, and when will that tender document go out? Members agreed? Agreed. Yeah. Mr. Um, just put on the record, yeah. I had also recently met with TWN in respect of this issue also, so I'd be very keen that, that we do that as a committee. Uh, uh, and I know individual MLAs have been taking this forward themselves, but any support that we can offer as a committee would be uh, very greatly appreciated by them, and I, I know for sure. I think it would be very greatly appreciated by, I think it's over 700 women um, that are part of this programme. And I think that for, the, for those women, they deserve answers as well to know whether or not that their programme is going to continue or not. I think as well, if we can copy any correspondence, I think that the uh, Department of Justice have a, a role in this also. So if we can copy any correspondence we send to the Minister, I know that the, the management of it, from what I understand from the stakeholder, or the TWN and others, um, sits with our um, department. But I think. DOJ have a role also, so if we can copy that. Yeah, I think the funding comes from the Executive Office and DOJ. Um, I stand corrected um, if that's not correct. Um, but it's rolled out through the Department of Communities, um, so it's the Department of Communities has responsibility for the programme. Um, Kelly, do you want to come in there? Did I see? Yes, please, yeah. Uh, yes, please Chair. Sorry. Um, yeah, there, I'm getting um, a lot of information through that there's an, an incredible amount of tenders that have are in the middle of evaluation um you know no grants programs seem to be being confirmed can we perhaps write just like this program um to the department to ask for an update on where they currently stand um with um you know all those tenders because we're we are coming extraordinarily close to the end of march and unless we have people who are able to deliver services going forward um you know, I, I, we're going to have problems from April. Um, so, I, I, like, for instance, there was word yesterday that the advice sector's um, potential funding isn't going to be as good in the coming year at a time when it's it's the most important time for people to have information. Um, the Work Ready Employment Service, the tenders, being, has been evaluated since November. 
Um, so there's quite a number of outstanding issues there. So with respect to um, external bodies that are going to be providing funded services, can we maybe get a departmental briefing, a written briefing, um, just to confirm exactly what's happening there? And it's quite urgent, so we need to come back to probably next week's committee, given that we're so close to the end of year. Yep, Kelly, thank you for that. I think that's a good idea that we ask about all tenders that are outstanding. Um, and my only concern with some of them is that some of these, from what we've heard, certainly on the, the, the WICT project, the tender hasn't even been written, never mind a tender put out on it. Um, so I think that's good that we ask for all the, an update on all tenders um, or of any programmes that are due to finish their funding at the 31st of, of March. Robin, did you want to come in? Yeah, it's really just to, to build on what uh, Andy had said around the TWN uh, and the women's programmes. Um, it's really a tripartite uh, because it's a fresh start ag agreement programme and uh, writing to justice I think is, is very constructive but I think the executive also need to be uh, involved in it, Chair. Okay. All right, members, can we move on from that one? Yes? Okay. Um, I just then want to mention um, uh, I've uh, attended a few APGs as have many members that are on this committee but we attended one yesterday on sports and physical recreation and I asked the question around the COVID funding for sports clubs for loss of income in bars etc. They were really very good in their answer and they did explain that some would receive the funding and some of them actually the funding will be more beneficial than the funding from the Department of Finance which is good news but they did make the point that there will be those, some of those clubs will be excluded because they don't meet the exact criteria of the sports um, funding. So it's just, I know we'd written last week, I just don't want to take this one off the boil. Um, so it's just to ask then um, further to our letters that we sent last week to the Department of Finance and to the Department for Communities um, to ask about that, that those that will be excluded from the sports fund. Um, where are they going to receive their funding from? So members in agreement with that. I have to say it was a really good meeting, lots of information. Um, Sports NI are the secretariat for that, and I know Sinead is the deputy chair on that as well. Um, so it was it, there was lots of information given to, to members of that all-party group on the various funding streams that uh, Sports NI are involved in. So members happy enough with that? Yeah? Okay. All right. Um, and I'm going to move on to agenda item three. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, which is the draft minutes. Members, you'll find these at page uh, at page six of your meeting pack, and that's the draft minutes of the 21st of January 2021. Our members con are content uh, with the minutes as drafted. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Then we'll move on to agenda. Item. Thank you. Agenda item four: matters arising. Can four members have been provided at page 14 um, with a departmental response to queries on phase two of the COVID-19 charities fund? Uh, the department has not made contact with the 129 unsuccessful charities from phase one and state that it would not be appropriate to do so as this could create an expectation um, they may have a greater chance of success in phase two. In advance of the launch of phase two, the department commissioned NICFA um, to support the sector. It is the minister's wish that as many charities as possible should benefit from this funding and the steps taken in the department to ensure that this is achieved through widespread promotion of the fund. Um, just remind members that at last week's meeting it was agreed that we sought a, a, a briefing from officials. In the meantime, um, are there any comments on that? Are they content to note while we wait for to, to hear back from officials about a briefing on this? Content? Yes? Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. 
Then, members, also you've been provided at page 16 with the departmental response um, to queries on liquor licensing holders database. And I think, Kelly, you have brought this up. Um, advice taken by officials states that there is no lawful basis for the department to hold such information and without a legal requirement to do so, this would amount to duplication of information and excessive holding of data. The department believes <coughs> it would therefore be in breach of data protection legislation if it were to hold a database of liquor licensing holders. Members, the Assembly Research has brought to the clerk's attention that through her contacts in the Institute of Public Health in Ireland, that the Department for Communities undertook a mapping exercise in 2016 where they plotted the, the location of all of the off-licensed premises in Northern Ireland and by towns and cities. Um, although it is not the same as the list that had been requested from the committee, I think it would be useful to see the results if of that exercise. Um, Kelly, I'll go to you because you had brought this up initially. Are you content with that approach? Yes, um, Chair, to be honest, I, I understand completely the department's rationale when it comes to data protection. As they say, there's currently no legal basis for them to hold that. However, I think in our committee considerations for um, liquor licensing, I find it astonishing that the department that's responsible for the enforcement um, doesn't know where all the liquor licenses are. Um, so I think that may well be something that we need to take into consideration um, as, as the bill progresses and, and consider that. Um, I just find it incredible that other parts of the UK, um, the government knows exactly where those liquor licenses are. Um, and here we don't. Uh, but yes, I think getting access to that map um, report would be very, very useful. Um, I'm just aware that we've been told time and time again that the rural pubs are um, vital parts of hubs of, of communities, but we don't actually know how many rural pubs there are in comparison to our cities. Um, I think it would be a very useful thing to have. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Kelly. Any other member, any comment? Are they content as, we, uh, as proposed that we go ahead with what we want to do? Yeah? Okay. Okay, members, then can we move on to page 17, where you'll find a departmental response to queries on the COVID-19 discretionary support fund. Uh, members, I know this was de debated um, last week at committee, so just want to ask, are there any comments on that? Are they content to note, Andy? I'm not content to note, Chair. Um, again, it seems to be the department are doing what they're very good at here and sidestepping the question. I know and appreciate that they can't give us data in the contingency fund in relation to a comparative as to how many people have received our field of the advance payment and how many the, the contingency fund, but it's concerning that that data is not available, but they haven't provided us with the breakdowns. No, they haven't. So Again. do we want to go back and ask for more information? I know it's certainly come up on our brief on Tuesday in our informal stakeholder event about uh, what, what is the pro forma that they actually use for whenever they're deciding. Um, uh, who is eligible and who is not because we know that we've we've heard some horror stories about people having to go to their kitchen cupboard and further, further to that, say sir, what they have. It's concerning that you know that, that isn't in place given the contingency fund is there specifically uh, in relation to UC and we're not mapping how many people uh, opted not to take the advance payment due to their circumstances and we heard those those stories on our stakeholder sessions, some of them very, very horrific. Um, uh, and it just doesn't form part of the society that, that I feel that we should be uh, <clears throat> the values that we should have and I'm concerned that the department doesn't have that data in terms of uh, comparative analysis 
Okay, so members then content that we write back to the department and ask for more information on this. Uh, Kelly? Kelly, go ahead. Uh, yes, Chair, I just want to... Sorry, yes, Chair, I just want to confirm what Andy has said there. When you look at the, at the eligibility, now it comes under loan eligibility, it's to ease a domestic crisis, given the fact that um, so much money is being returned on the discretionary one. I, we're not getting the detail of the eligibility for the discretion that's that's able to be used by officers. Um, as, as you have said, Chair, um, the briefing that we received on Tuesday, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason as to the decisions that are being taken by officials on this. There may well be some sort of criteria there, but we haven't been provided with what we asked. Um, the other thing that has me concerned as a committee, we're unable to um, ascertain whether or not there's equitable provision of the, the funds, the discretionary fund in particular, because there's no measurements being made. If they haven't got published eligibility criteria that's used by officers to decide who receives, then how are they to measure how effective that discretionary support has been? Um, and I think as part of our questions back to the department would be to ask them to review as an urgent matter um, the eligibility criteria to reflect upon that and if they need to, to um, help people because that domestic crisis, I'm sure a lot of us here have heard from parents with children who are being um, learning at home, the so-called homeschooling, um, who are out an absolute fortune when it comes to home heating because Obviously, it's winter now and it's a lot colder. Um, those parents are struggling, but yet they're the ones who are being turned down for discretionary support. Um, if we're to alleviate childhood poverty and the effects of poverty for children, then I would be asking the department for this last period of time, if there's money there to be spent, obviously it needs to be spent carefully. It is public money, but get it out the door and look at to see if the barriers are being created by the officers as part of the discretionary support package or discretionary support um, criteria. Okay, thank you. Kelly, Mark, I see you have a hand up. I, uh, thank you, Chair. My camera's still not working, uh, unfortunately for me, but fortunately for you, probably. Now, uh, uh, Kelly basically said what I was going to say, but uh, I think discretion is the thing here. And now I got an answer to an assembly question earlier this week that showed, despite all the assurances that we've had from, from both ministers that we've had over the past, while how generous this is and you know, how much better it is than uh, self-isolation grants that exist elsewhere, because uh, like only 2% of awards have been £500 or, or more, which shows that the vast majority, therefore 98%, are uh, below that. So it's, it's little wonder... Therefore, not not, and that's the people that are qualifying, but an awful lot of people aren't because the threshold is set where it's at. But I would very much uh, concur with Kelly's view that, that we have to look at when there is money there that has to be spent this year at, at, at how that can get out to those in real need who haven't been able to access any other support at all. Yeah, Mark, thank you. Andy, did you want to come in again? Yeah, just very quickly, Chair. Um, just for uh, the committee's information, is it perhaps prudent for us also to ask for uh, a breakdown of the, the wider DS budget um, since its introduction and uh, a comparative analysis of how much was actually spent in each of those years so that we can see um, how much is actually going out and how much may have been returned to the centre? Yep, we can ask that as well. Members, look, I'm happy enough with all of that. I just want to ask, are everybody content with all of the proposals that are on the table to go forward with this? Yes? 
Yeah, okay. All right, mm -hmm. then. If members are happy, we'll move on then. Uh, members, again, if I can ask you to turn to page 22, there's departmental response and queries to community transport. Um, officials have had some engagement with rural community transport in relation to driver training, but to date, no engagement has taken place on the issue of funding. Um, I know, Kelly, this is one that you've brought up as well. Have you any comment on that? Or are you content? Um, sorry, Chair. I just with regards, I think you've sort of missed the point. It's not so much about community transport being funding funded. Um, community transport is a part of the community and voluntary sector, and they receive funding through the Department of Infrastructure. My concern is that each department treats um, voluntary community and voluntary sector providers differently. So community transport, like many community and voluntary organisations throughout this pandemic, have provided a fantastic service. I know that they're going to be involved with helping people to access vaccine centres coming up, um, but their money is not um, ring-fenced within the Department of Infrastructure, as this is found with many other um, community organisations funded outside of, of our committee or our department. Um, it's more to see what is being done on a cross-departmental basis from the department to ensure that community and voluntary sector organisations are being treated by government in a, in a similar way. Um, you know, so that if there is a grant funding or tenders or contracts that are coming out for them, that there's no expectation that they have to work to a zero balance at the end of every year, that reserves are recognised in line with Companies House and Charity Commission um, guidance. So it's, it's more to do with how are the department reaching out across the executive departments um, to ensure that the community and voluntary sector um, is being treated the same everywhere. Um, it is this department's um, responsibility for that. We also haven't had an update on the Concordat agreement negotiations that were ongoing between the department, NICFA and others. Um, it would be good to understand where that is because that may have an implication for future budget funding um, for community and voluntary sectors again in our own department and other departments. Okay, Kelly, thank you. Any other member, any comment they want to make on that? No, if not, then do members agree with, with the proposals that Kelly set out there? Yes? Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks Kelly. Okay, members, if I can ask you then to turn to page 23 where there's a departmental response to queries on the second independent review of PIP. The department is carefully considering the recommendations in the recently published independent review of personal independence payment report and the formal response will be pu published in spring 2021. Again, can I ask members any comments? Or are they content to note that? Content to note? So, Mark, your hand is still up. I don't know if you want to come in. Sorry. No, so, sorry, Chair. That's fine. I might, I might come on later. I'll do. Well, well, I said it could come on here. It's something I had raised in question time, maybe last week. And I know Kelly has asked questions about it going back a, a number of months ago. Uh, and it was around the assessments, the contract with Capita. You know, uh, ministers now have given a couple of different answers in terms of their intentions around that contract. And it, it, it's integral to this because we, we know the recommendations were very much the assessments are, are brought in-house. But and I know uh, the minister or a minister previously said that the contract with Capita was going to be extended for two years. I think that's the answer you got, Kelly. Yeah. Where I've subsequently got a couple of answers that says it's, it's under review or it, it, it's being uh, considered. But if that contract is to be extended, that's going to happen pretty soon. So I, I think it's important maybe that we maybe write as a committee and ask what's happening there rather than wait to spring 21 and, and get everything in the one go. 
Okay, no mark, that's grand. Thank you. Members agree with that? that we we progress Mark's proposal, yes? Yep, okay, thank you. All right, members, can I, can I ask you then to turn to page 24, where you'll see a reply from the Arts Council to committee queries on IARP. I think Andy, you had brought this up at our last meeting. Um, there were 1,800 applications to the programme during the eligibility checking stage. 211 applications were deemed ineligible for reasons including missing mandatory enclosures, mandatory enclosures not meeting ACNI requirements, or the applicant not residing in Northern Ireland. A further 15 applicants have withdrawn from the programme. Details on the number of successful and unsuccessful applications will not be known until the assessment and decision-making process is complete in mid-February of this year, and this information will be forwarded to the committee in due course. Um, so, members, any comment on that or content note? Content? Okay. Thank you. Okay, members, so we're going to now move on to the licensing bill. I don't know if we have our witnesses on our screen there. I don't see it. Could members, could you double-check that for me? Because um, I don't see them in the audience. Can somebody check that, or am I? Because we can move on to um, some of our other stuff near the end of there. Yeah. Okay. Well, far on three. Hold on. They see where we are. What agenda item number can we go to here? We can go to agenda item ten. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just remind me where I am. Come back again. Um, agenda item 10, then I was asked you to go to there. Um, you'll find this at a copy of this SL1 at page 49, and it's the Loans and Mortgages Interest Amendment Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. Um, this proposed rule will make minor changes to current regulations in respect of domestic violence and cold weather payments in uh, relation to the Mortgage Act for Support Interest Scheme. These will correct drafting errors with the current regulations to ensure that regulations accurately reflect the policy intent, the changes do not change current policies. Can I just ask members content um, for the department to proceed to make that rule? Yes? Okay. Yeah, content. Content. Then agenda item 11 is the Social Fund Funeral Expenses Payment Amendment Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. You'll find this SL1 at page 54. Um, as a result of the exit amendment is required to the Social Fund Maternity and Funeral Expenses General Regulations Northern Ireland 2005, in the absence of such an amendment from the 1st of January 2021, the Department has no legal basis to award funeral expenses payments to eligible EU and EEA nationals organising a funeral in the UK. Um, members, again, are you content um, with this for the Department to proceed to make this rule also? Okay, thank you. Members, then I'm going to actually now move you to agenda item 16. This, this was late coming in, so it's been put down as 16. Um, you'll find uh, this SL1 in your tabled papers. And it is the housing, ben the housing Benefit and Universal Credit Housing Costs Executive Determinations Amendment Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. Um, the Department of Communities proposes to make a statutory rule subject to negative resolution under powers conferred by the Social Security Contri Contributions and Benefits Northern Ireland Act 1992 and the Welfare Reform Northern Ireland Order. 2015, the purpose of the rule is to freeze local housing allowance rates in cash terms from the 1st of April 2021, following the increase in local housing allowance rates in April 2020. The corresponding GB statutory instrument comes into force today. The NI rule should therefore be made as soon as possible after the GB statutory instrument has been made 
and brought into operation on the same date. So can I ask members, have they any comments? Are they content for the department to proceed to make this rule? Content? Yes? Okay, thank you. Okay, we've got... Yes, sorry, go ahead. I'm content for that, that rule to go ahead, but um, just following on from our briefing on Tuesday, the differential for private renters um, and housing benefit and rent costs um, is concerning. I'm just wondering, um, this phrase, if private landlords are going to increase their rental costs, um, you know, from the 1st of April, which may be an annual occurrence for some people, I'm just wondering if how many more people are going to be in, in, in difficulties. Um, I don't know how we find out that information, however. Um, I don't know what, you know, to phrase this sounds like, a, you know, a good thing, but I just don't know if, if phrasing universal credit housing costs will have a further detrimental impact on people, and especially in the private rented sector, not so much in the social housing Um I don't, I don't know. Can we maybe ask the department if they could give us a written update just on that? Yeah, I mean, they will hold, they will hold the database of how many people are on the pri in the private rented sector, which we know is a massive amount. Um, so, yeah, we can ask those questions. Members in agreement with that? Yes? Okay, members, I'm going to move you back again because our witness has arrived. Um, so I'm going to go back to agenda item five. Um, which is the Arma Cider Company briefing on the licensing and res uh, registration of clubs amendment bill. I will get that right one of these days. Um, can I inform members that the papers for this agenda item are at page 26? And can I offer a very warm welcome to Helen Troughton? Um, Helen, you're very welcome with us today. I'm just waiting on you being brought into the spotlight. There you go, you're with us now. Um, Helen, um, if you want to begin your briefing, you have a maximum of 10 minutes to brief us. Um, don't feel that you have to use all of those 10 minutes, just allow us plenty of time to ask questions. Um, so, uh, and if you run over, I'll come in and let you know. So Helen, if you want to go ahead, you're very welcome today. Okay, thank you. I take it you can hear me okay? Can indeed, yes. Good, okay. Okay, well thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you today. Armagh Cider Company is a family business which has led the rejuvenation of cider making in County Armagh. Hold on, I've been told to reduce the volume, I don't know how. Um, from being the only cider maker when we started in 2006, there are now seven others participating at various levels. Um, we make cider from blossom to bottle on our home farm at Ballantaggart. That means we grow the apples, harvest them, press them into juice, ferment them into cider, filter, blend, and then bottle. Cider is different from beer. Cider is wine. It takes time to make. Each year, we have only one harvest. That is one opportunity to make the cider for the following year. The apples we harvested in the autumn will not be ready until, to bottle until late spring this year. That is six months in the making, waiting patiently for our crop to be ready for sale. Our ciders are artisan products using entirely local ingredients, employing local people, contributing to the exchequer despite the restrictions placed on us. Local producers are licensed by HMRC to produce the alcohol, meet their strict conditions and pay the excise duty required. But the current legislation in Northern Ireland prevents us from selling direct to the public, and this is stifling investment and growth of our sector. In order to get our products to market, we are compelled to use the services of an intermediary, an alcohol distributor, and rely on them to convey our story and sell our products for us. Indeed, many supermarkets and the larger shops will only deal with distributors and not with small producers. We also do not have the huge marketing budgets of the mainstream brands, which enable them to become household names. 
In order to get our products stocked in local bars, we have to compete directly against the mainstream brands on margin and volume, which is well nigh impossible for artisan producers. Never mind the other tactics frequently used, like low-cost loans, which leads to con the control of a bar's product range, like tied pubs, or massive discounting, with pallets of product being given away free to ensure that the bar stays loyal to them, excluding everyone else. If we were based in any other part of the UK or Europe, we would be allowed to sell our cider direct to the public from our own premises, as well as at some festivals. This would give us the opportunity to tell our own story and gain some direct traction in the marketplace. At this point, may I add that we and the other artisan deciders are making quality premium products, which in many cases have won international awards. They are not cheap products. Then we go to tourism. Food and drink are two major influences on encouraging, encouraging tourists to visit. Our ciders are made predominantly from the Armagh Bramley apple, which is PGI status, making them as unique as Champagne or Parma ham, both of which are huge tourism draws for their regions. We welcome groups to visit and see our orchards, processing and bottling facilities. People are interested in the whole process and also enjoy tasting the freshly pressed juice and ciders. However, if you visit any winery or cidery in France or England, after seeing around the vineyards or orchards, you are invited to sample the products and then you can purchase what you like. Here you can visit, but if you wish to purchase, we have to tell you which shops are stocking it and hope that you remember to go along and buy. The chance of some extra income for the producer is gone. By allowing us to sell our products directly to the public would increase the viability of inviting tourists onto our premises. We are based in the Armagh, Banbridge and Craigavon Council area and the council have been very active in attracting tourism to the area. The Armagh Bramley Apple PGI and the Indigenous Orchards are central to this, along with the Loch Eel, which also has PGI. Armagh has a strong food focus. Creating a local food and drink event or tour is a great way to boost the local economy by creating jobs and increasing tourist numbers. The emphasis of their tourism development marketing strategy of 17 to 22 is to utilise these unique strengths and assets to attract international visitors. They recognise that a key part of the experience for visitors is the ability to learn about the produce, to sample and to purchase at the production premises. They would also welcome the ability for artisan producers to sell their products at festivals, as they believe this would attract, help to attract visitors to the rural parts of the borough. Now, how do I see the situation being improved? As suggested in the bill, a new category of alcohol licence, producers' licences. However, we feel these should only be available to genuine independent producers, <clears throat> not agents. The difference being a producer is the one who bears the financial loss if the product fails during production. At the minute in Northern Ireland, licences to sell alcohol are linked to premises. The prices are extortionate, and this puts them outside the scope of artisan producers. As a producer, we only want to be allowed to sell what we produce. We do not want to become an off-licence or a bar. The growth of our industry will benefit many sectors. Producers, as already mentioned, the apple industry, which is in bad need of support. Like many farming enterprises, it is under stress. With a vibrant local cider industry, apple requirements will increase and with it better returns for the growers. Employment. As the local cideries grow, more staff will be required. We now employ four people alongside our family, and if producers' licenses become available, that number will increase. Tourism. Food tourism is an up-and-coming trend. There are already several established tours available throughout Europe. In France, there's the Cider Route in Normandy, as well as several wine trails. Cider tours in the UK, France and Spain are worth millions to their economies. Treasury. This industry is already contributing to the exchequer, exchequer even, by the payment of excise duty. In 2019, there's no point talking about last year, in 2019, Armagh Cider Company alone generated in excess £50,000 in excise duty. And with little support, that will only grow more. However, we do expect the cost of the producers' licences to be kept to a nominal amount as in England. Producers are responsible people. 
We appreciate the need for regulations, and at no time are we advocating the sale of cheap alcohol. All we are asking for is the same facility as the rest of the UK and Europe, to be allowed to sell our products for our own premises and at specific festivals. I hope you, the committee, will look favourably on our request. Any questions, please? Thank you, Helen. Thank you, and you kept within your time limits, so well done. I think I'm writing saying that you're our first cider producer to come and brief the committee. I think I'm right in that, aren't I? Yeah, I am indeed. Um, so you're very welcome, and I certainly know, um, and we did have a, a previous MLA on this committee from down around those parts who uh, very much was a champion for the, the cider growers down in Armagh. Um, so very welcome, and as are we all, we're, we're, we are champions on this committee for people who actually have that entrepreneurship to start up businesses, to, to have a product that will bring in tourism, that will bring in an income to Northern Ireland. So we want to support you on that. Um, I just want to ask you then, um, you talked there uh, about the issues that you're having, and we know them all too well, these issues of not, not being able to sell your product. Um, Helen, just how much do you think in, in monetary terms, and we'll not look at the last year that went by, we'll look at a normal year, um, how much do you, would you imagine that your losses would be not being able um, to, to sell that entire experience to someone who's coming down for a tour or, 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 or others who, who live in and around Northern Ireland that want to buy your product? It's very hard to justify or to estimate because with never having been able to, therefore we have nothing to gauge it against. However, all I can tell you is that there are, well, obviously places in England that I'm going to say would be lifting maybe £1,000 a week, but that would be at outside big cities, you know, cideries that are based out there. However, like with us, you're talking maybe a few hundred pounds every week. But again, that, that just helps. Um, it also... We can't do one-offs. We can't do special items. We're fortunate in that we are in some of the supermarkets. However, uh, whenever we bring out a special brand, the supermarkets won't take it because it's a one-off. It'll only last three months. So there's no incentive for us to even try that. Uh, and that's one of our problems. So that's where it's you know, stifling us. Um, and during, like, during the lockdowns, it's been so frustrating because bars included this, the, the shops at... Um, producer, uh, producer shops could continue to sell even though the off-licenses were closed. And that was put out everywhere. And yet we were sitting here, we can't do that. And that was to try and help those people keep going. Like, at the end of the day, we're just a, a farm trying to sell our products. Helen, just then to follow on from that, um, you had talked there about producers' licenses, and we've heard that from the various um, uh, brewery or microbreweries and brewers, brewers that have come in to speak to us about a producer's license, and um, we're, we're, I mean, we're hearing more and more how this will enable um, those businesses um, to to uh, sell their product on on their premises, which is which is right that they should be able to sell their product on their premises, the product that they make, absolutely. Um, and you'd said that you only want to sell your own product. Are you are you then asking, um, as others have asked, for the, the for us to look at the issue around tap rooms? Is that the the road that you want to go down, or is it something different that you that you, you would like to propose there? I I have no interest whatsoever in a tap room. All we want to do is make the product and then be able to sell it. Um, to me, a tap room, to be honest, I feel it's nothing more than a bar. And our cidery is at our home farm. And the last thing I want is a bar on my back door. 
So, no, I have no interest whatsoever in a tap room. If we were fit to be able to sell our product, if someone came in, like we give tours in the minute. Like last, in 2019, we were the most authentic, we were rated the most authentic Northern Ireland visit of Northern, of by tourism in Northern Ireland. Um, we get a lot of American visitors in every year. Um, our product is not available in America. They want to bring a bottle back with them. It's difficult to bring a bottle, but having said all that, um, I can't sell it to them. And it's just, it's so, it's so frustrating. Not only, so last year, we not only lost our tourism, but we also have also, we, well, we never did have this, so we didn't have this either. But no, definitely not. I have no interest whatsoever in a tap room. I just want to be able to let the people, by all means, sample it here if they want to sample it, but I mean sample it. I don't mean drink bottles of it. Sample of it and then take buy some bottles, take home, enjoy, and then come back again and hopefully buy some more. Okay, Helen, look, thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, I'm going to open up for members. Um, Kelly has her hand up. Will other members let me know if they want to come in? Kelly? Thank you very much, Chair. Um, hi, Helen, and thank you very much for your presentation. Armagh is famous for its apples and, of course, of its cider. Um, I've noted what you've said about, um, you know, you don't want to have a tap room. Um, Kelly, I can. You... Oh, sorry, can you hear me? Thank you very much. Um, Arma is famous for its, its apples and its cider. Um, I know that you've said that you have no interest in um, a tap room. Have you any problems with tap rooms happening in other um, cideries, wineries, um, distilleries or um, breweries? No, I haven't. Like, if that's what they want, that's fine. However, I am inclined to say that a tap room... The guys that are having that have pubs are having a hard enough time at the moment, and to me, a tap room is in opposition to a pub. They've paid their rent and rates for years and years and years. I don't want to stand on their toes. I'm not trying to take away their trade. I'm not trying to encourage people to come here instead of go there. I I feel that what we're doing should work in a line with with both the off licenses and the tap rooms or and the bar. Sorry. So I'm sorry, and. I just don't see the really the need for it because a tap room will end up, I feel, a tap room will end up selling other products apart from their own products. And therefore, it's not strictly, I could be wrong, it's not, to me, it's not strictly a producer's license. I have no interest in selling somebody else's product because the story is here and it's my, it's our products and that's why. Okay. Um, can I just ask you then, um, when, when you talk about selling your own product closed, for you know to be taken away off premises at this moment in time what is the barrier to you guys having your own off license money money how much i've already spent i've already spent 800,000 putting in a bottling plant a processing plant and a bottling plant to me to turn around and spend it'll cost where we reckon it would cost about another 100,000 to put in a, an off license okay. i don't have it yeah, and and just explain to us why that cost. Um, is it the cost of purchasing the license, or that? Yeah, that's what we're led to believe. Um, and we haven't gone like I be honest, like that's what we're told when we inquire. That's what we're told. If we can get, uh, if there was a cheap off license out there going, yes, by all means. But like <clears throat> for all, at the end of the day, we're going to sell. We're only going to sell our own. We only want to sell our own product. I don't want to have the distributors' lorry driving in and here and laying off loading their whiskey and their gin and their what and their what. I just want to be able to sell our own product. That's all. So a full off license is not what I need. No. Um, 
if it was at a reasonable rate, we'd have had one long ago. I have been, believe it or not, most of what I read out here, I read out to Stormont in 2016. And, you know, things have, like we started in 2006 and I've been fighting for this ever since. Just please give me a license. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Um, I'm just thinking, um, obviously you're part of the tourist offer in the Arma area. Yeah. And to be honest, you're part of the tourist offer for the whole of Northern Ireland because there is a, a, a need for us to promote homegrown, you know, Yes. Food stuffs and, and drinks. Um, I'm just wondering, have you any idea at this stage what your value is to the local Armagh tourist market? Because you're going to be a very good draw for people, the reason, one of the reasons why they go to Armagh. Yes. We, um, well, if I told you that last year in 2020, I had over 100 groups of Americans booked in to come to me. Um, and it's growing every year. And I would, if I said last year it was probably going to be worth to us somewhere about 30,000, 40,000. And that was just for the visit. That wasn't any sales. Mm -hmm. um, we do make our apple juices as well. We make apple juice and we've just started to make uh, lemonades and tonic waters and things like that. We can now try and sell some of that. Um, but again, as I say, they just love to taste the cider. It's so, so different from what they get over there. And um, no, so you know, yeah. but yes, no, no, tourism that, definitely is growing, been, but we need to. Yeah. No, that's that's fine. Do you think that, um, obviously, when people come at the moment, they can get a small sample? Um, if they were able to take that away, um, have you had any indication from those sort of foreign tourists? Is there a, is there a limit? I don't think I believe they don't they can't carry what they have purchased back home with them, so to say, um, you know, on a plane, you know, that carriage of liquids isn't great. Um, but the export then, I'm sure, must be quite a leading thing for yourselves. You know, somebody comes along and they sample and then they and then you can export then, obviously, to those Americans when they go back home. Is that an issue for you See, at I the moment? Yes. Because I don't have a license, I can't sell either. Because we don't have a license, I can't sell online. <clears throat> And I can't sell to those people to take home with them either. So all I can do is take yeah. a picture. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you, Helen. That was really, really useful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Kelly. Um, any other member want to ask a question of Helen? Nobody has indicated that they want to ask any further questions that I can see of. I, sorry, Robin, did you... No, not a question, Chair. I just want to say thank you for the very clear, very concise uh, way in which she has uh, portrayed her business and exactly what she wants out of the uh, application or the, the perhaps change in legislation. Um, I think I'm completely understanding where she's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Helen, I know I have I've I've travelled to lots of various places where there have been wineries or um, various other things. And I remember going to um, to one in Georgia, 
and bringing home various cases of different wines that they packaged because they knew it was for the tourist market and they had wonderful packaging that was very easily put into suitcases without any breakages and everything else. So, I mean, I absolutely get that, where you, especially where you have American tourists um, that are tasting a product that is, you know, that is something that they, they cannot get back home. And for them, they would, be, they would buy in great quantities if packaged properly to take home with them on their flights. So, I mean, I absolutely get that. I think that um, that, that certainly needs to change. There's no doubt about it um, because we rely heavily on the likes of yourselves and others when it comes to the tourism in Northern Ireland. Um, so, look, and I, I want to say as well, thank you for, very, for being very clear and concise also um, and what you've asked of the committee and what also what you've told the committee. So can I thank you, Helen? Um, for joining us today. Thank no you. No problem. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye bye. Okay. Bye members, bye. I'm just going to propose we just take a, a very short break to prepare for the next witness. Twenty nine. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room Twenty Nine. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. Okay, members, just before I move on to agenda item six, um, I omitted to mention something with all of the confusion back and forward there. Just to let you know that the committee's call for evidence um, uh, closed last week and we've had over 50 responses. So just to update you on that um, before I move on. Um, so then I'm going to move on then to agenda item six, which is public health agency briefing on the licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill. Members, you'll find um, this agenda item at page 32 of your meeting pack. So then can I welcome Michael Owen, who's Senior Drugs and Alcohol Coordinator, and Morris Mayen, who's Head of Health Improvement. Michael and Morris, you are both very welcome to the meeting today. Can I then um, ask Michael, I think it is, um, if you want to begin your briefing, and you have up to 10 minutes, Michael? Have we got Michael with Morris, definitely. I can see Morris. Oh, how are you doing? Morris Mayen here. Uh, we've had some technical issues about just uh, uh, getting on audio, so... Okay. It's all right. It, would, it, wouldn't so, be, it wouldn't be the Committee for Communities if we didn't have some technical issues, so we're well used to that. But we haven't got Michael. <laughs> Michael doesn't appear to have joined the meeting. Morris, are you happy to do the brief? No problem. I can do that. Brilliant. If you want to go ahead, and sure if Michael can come in and join us, that would be great. We'll let him in whenever he's, we see him on the screen. Do you want to go ahead, Morris? Okay, so okay, thanks a million. Okay, so um sorry, excuse me a wee second. I had to run down to get the uh the battery for the phone there just in case because we weren't on audio. So if you give me thirty seconds if you don't mind. No, that's okay. Go ahead and do that. Michael, we can wait. It's not a problem. This is the joy of, of technology. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, folks. Well, it's okay, I, 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 usually, I usually just blame everybody else in the room here. I don't think you'd have anybody to blame there, <laughs> Morris. Uh, uh, well, thanks. Thanks for the answer for giving. Oh, with Michael okay, in so with us morning. now too. There, White Michael, you're welcome as well. Great. Um, so, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so, my name is Morris Meehan, uh, head of health improvement at the Public Health Agency's Northern Office. Uh, I'm also the agency strategic lead for alcohol and drugs. I'm also joined this morning by my colleague, Michael Owen, who's a thematic lead for alcohol and drugs within the agency. <clears throat> so on behalf of the PHA, can I thank the Committee for Communities for your invitation um, to provide uh, evidence on the license and registration of clubs bill. Uh, you'll be aware that the agency, uh, by our Chief Executive, Alan McLeod, has submitted a written response to the Committee's invitation to make a written submission on the license and registration of clubs bill on the 14th of December. 2020. Um, our overall view uh, is that the in any increase in the accessibility of alcohol would put increased strain on resources within health and social services on the basis that increased accessibility consolidates and would further encourage alcohol consumption as a social norm and would lead to increased overall population consumption. In turn, this would be expected to lead to increased negative effects 
on the health and well-being of individuals, families and communities. Although increased alcohol availability may support aspects of our economy, such as tourism, we agree that it's responsible to adopt a whole systems approach in considering changes to legislation. It has been estimated that in financial terms alone, the social cost of alcohol-related harm in Northern Ireland is approximately at least 900 million each year. This figure would be expected to increase if policies of wider availability of alcohol are, are implemented. We strongly contend that it is vitally important that the public health messaging and the negative health and well-being effects of alcohol misuse are regularly communicated within a general liquor licensing system. One of the several objectives in the new strategic direction of alcohol and drugs, phase two, a framework for reducing alcohol and drug-related harm in Northern Ireland, is to challenge the social norms associated with alcohol misuse that drive the drinking culture. We do not support any change to legislation that leads to an increase in alcohol accessibility, as our view is that this reinforces the social norm and increases the risk of alcohol misuse and its harms. In addition, we would support the inclusion of any explicit statement that the protection of public health and promotion of well-being is a key objective of the Northern Ireland licensing legislation. Still there, Morris? Yeah, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry. Sorry. We've lost Michael by the way, but I can hear you. Okay. Um, so also can I just we stop there? Some we have a withheld number has come through. Could that be? Um because we're not waiting on anybody else. But we'll double check that. I'm sorry, Morris, for interrupting you. Sorry. No Go ahead. Um, just there's a withheld number we've brought into the spotlight. If you know who, if you can hear us, and you know that you're now been brought into the spotlight, can you tell us who you are? I, yes, I can hear you. My name is Michael Owen. Unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't unable to get through on the Starleaf system. That's dead on, Michael. Glad to have you here. We, we keep interrupting Morris here when he's in full flow. Um, so I'll, I'll come mm -hmm. back. Thanks, Michael, for joining us. Um, Morris, you want to carry on? Sorry. Yeah, no problem. So, so they. Uh, no, no pun intended in relation to the flow reference, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, okay, so let, let's consider some of the alcohol statistics related to Northern Ireland. So 31% of adults binge drink at least once a week, and the source of that is the Adult Drinking Pattern Survey 2013. 18% of adults consume alcohol above weekly limits, Northern Ireland Health Survey 2017-18. And alcohol-related hospital admissions, both for primary and, and any diagnosis, have also steadily increased for males and females. The same pattern was observed for admissions with a diagnosis of alcoholic liver disease. Um, Alcohol-related deaths have increased over the past 17 years for both males and females. And finally, 40% of children and young people registered on the Child Protection Register and 70% of those who are looked after children uh, have this status due to parental substance misuse. And the source of that is our hidden harm strategy. So if we also consider any other important evidence produced and adapted by the Faculty of Public Health on advertising and marketing, Exposure to advertising has led to both uh, earlier initiation into drinking and heavier drinking by children and young people so exposed. Children are more likely to drink beverages that are heavily uh, advertised, unlike adults who consume a more diverse range of products. The third, uh, the level of intoxication and the odds of drink driving and being involved in physical alter altercations upon leaving an on-trade venue is doubled by the presence of price promotions. 
On, on sales and licensing, there is strong evidence that the price of alcohol is an important determinant in its consumption. A 10% increase in the price of alcohol would lead to a 5% decrease in its consumption. Minimum use unit pricing, which would, would affect high-risk drinkers and off-trade the most. Moderate drinkers and on-trade would be minimally affected at the proposed rates. Early reports suggest positive effects in reducing the consumption of alcohol with heavy drinkers in Scotland as a consequence of the introduction of minimum unit pricing. The PHA would be very supportive of the potential adoption of minimum unit pricing in Northern Ireland and very keen to follow up with any of you who have an interest in exploring this option. Coming to the end now, so the protection of children and other vulnerable groups, risks are increased where licensed premises have no restrictions on where families can sit, such as at the bar. The time that families can be present, where the focus is on drinking and where alcohol is advertised. And UK population level studies are clearly demonstrating an elevated health burden attributable to alcohol in, in areas of, of higher disadvantage, even though the consumption levels are less. So may I thank you for your invitation to provide uh, evidence to the committee. Uh, myself and Michael are happy to take any questions you might have. Okay, Morris, look, thank you very much for that. Um, I, I, I know certainly it's, it's, it's well recognised that in Northern Ireland our relationship with alcohol um, certainly doesn't cover us in glory. And I also know I, I worked for uh, I worked in Antrimaria Hospital and White Abbey for a number of years and worked with a lot of people um, who, as a result of alcohol dependency, needed major medical intervention. So not only seeing the, 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 the side of that, of the need and the reliance on the health service, but all the side that that had on families and society on the whole. Um, so I suppose just to, the, the first question I want to ask, you had put down, quoted a figure of 900 million per year um, as a figure for alcohol-related harm. Um, do you have any sort of estimate um, that you would say that this would cost if, if we looked at the likes of the additional hours or drinking uptime or, or any of the other proposals within this bill? Um, if you any estimate of, of any increase that would be? Perhaps if I could comment on that, Morris. Go okay, ahead. Michael, please. Um, yeah, no, well, it, it's very difficult in terms to put an estimate on, on any one of these or, or, or them together. Um, however, what, what we have seen certainly on all legislation in the last 50 years that, that has increased availability to alcohol, overall population consumption has increased. Now, it, it's basically absolutely impossible for us to say, would that be by 1%, 2%, 3%? But what we can say is the pattern in every case that where availability, availability is increased, uh, consumption increases. Um, thank, thanks for that, uh, Michael. Um, I know that from what we and evidence that we have taken, um, that the vast majority of people, alcohol consumption is within their own home. It's not um, within our bars and restaurants. And we, we see that increase more and more. And I think actually during COVID, you'll see um, that that actually will increase going forward because people have got into that habit now of, of drinking at home rather than going out and plus it has it, it, it has a, an economic benefit to them as well. Um, I know that you had um, uh, your submission state you didn't agree with the rules around children in licensed premises and the relaxation of that. Um, I would assume it's because that would you feel that that encourages children to see this as, a, as something that is normal. Um, just have you any evidence behind that? Well, well, 
certainly there, there's a raft of evidence in terms of um, uh, children and, and their attitudes. I think often in the agency, what we often say to parents, and being a parent myself uh, of two kids, do not underestimate uh, the power, you know, you, how your behaviours uh, affect your children's attitudes and values. Um, indeed, you know, the, the, the evidence is clear that, that children are most greatly influenced by their own parents. So, you know, even in terms of COVID, we were putting out a press release last week and one of our key messages was about not drinking um, in front of your children. Because again, this, this comes back to the reinforcement of social norms, uh, where children grow up without, you know, seeing alcohol as a normal, normal, uh, a normal behaviour um, as such. So certainly our, our, our reservations and concerns uh, around relaxing rules uh, on children and licensed premises would be that this would, would absolutely reinforce the norm. And then I just finally want to ask you around the uh, codes of practice. Your submission um, highlights that if current voluntary codes of practice um, were approved by the department, you don't feel that this goes far enough to regulate the industry. Um, what would you like to, to see um, around those codes of practice? Um, well, first of all, we'd like it to be a statutory code of pr uh, practice, not industry-led. Um, it's been our experience over the last 30 years, you know, and we, we have seen industry-led codes of practice on uh, drinks, promotions, etc. And whilst these may be, be, be uh, followed by uh, you know, a majority um, of retailers, there is always and constantly um, a minority of, of, of um, venues where, where these are ignored. Um, so certainly our experience to date, and certainly in terms of working with uh, the PSNI, is that we would argue that statutory regulation, which is rigorously enforced, uh, is likely to be much more effective than a, than a simple industry code of um, a practice. Our concern also is, is that if the codes of practice are given some type of approval by the Department of Communities or Government, um, that they'll be, be seen as being stronger than they actually are. No, I understand that. Um, members, anybody want to ask any questions of um, Michael or Morris? Can you signal? signal or I've got to say it hands now. Um, I've got Alex and then I've got Robin. Alex? Uh, um, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, most presentations we've had so far have been supportive of changing the bill. Um, and yours is quite stark in its contrasts that uh, the, the problems. Um, of increasing opening hours and stuff like that, um, and it's, it it is quite worrying. I mean, the amount of money, nine hundred million, on health-related issues to do with alcohol, um, that is worrying. And seeing some of the statistics, thirty-one percent adults are binge drinking. Um, I actually, I wouldn't have thought that, but but obviously, you know. Um, do you really believe that increasing the, the opening hours by an extra hour or so, you know, it is really going to make such a big difference? Or, or I, I, I think I, I would say to you, um, this is what we call the drip drip effect. Uh -huh. Now, it will, you know, in our view, and, and we would be, be very clear in our evidence that every occasion across the last 30, 40, 50 years where um, availability or, or licensing hours have, have increased, we have seen an increase uh, then in overall population consumption. Um, 
so whilst you know increase of an hour or a half hour may seem very modest it has been the drip drip effect over the years of where alcohol is now more widely available and actually cheaper in terms than 30 years ago um, uh, if, you, if you look at the economics on that so you know the reason I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm sure we can come across as going what is the PHA talking about it's only an hour what big difference is that going to make I guess I would say to anyone is go into one of our EDs on a Friday and Saturday night and see what difference it makes. Uh, people will inevitably uh, drink more if they have more, uh, you know, if they have more time. Um, now, not everyone will, but if you take it across um, over the entire population, we have no doubt that we will see some form of an increase in alcohol consumption. Okay. Um, also, you mentioned about the. If there was a 10% increase in costs of alcohol, that, if I'm correct, it was a 5% in decrease in health issues, or would that be a 5% in decrease of the 900 million that's been spent on health? Uh, no, I, I think this was linked to, to Morris' introduction, um, what we call minimum unit pricing. Uh -huh. um, so that again is where you know the minimum unit pricing, which which indeed is supported by the industry in Northern Ireland, um, uh, because again um, it the effect it has people see it as some form of additional tax, but actually what it is it's a 10% increase on al basically you're 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 adding to units, so therefore the strongest drinks become the most expensive drinks, and those who are drinking those most strongest drinks. You know, such as very high strength lagers, very high strength um, uh, ciders, which are currently sold very cheaply. Um, they cause the most most damage, both mentally and physically. Um, and you know, you will see it quite often where you know, particularly where there's alcohol dependency. Someone is trying to get the highest strength alcohol for the lowest possible price. So minimum unit uh, price or pricing has been shown to affect very effective. Uh, in terms of, of reducing the harm for that most vulnerable group in society who, who are dependent on alcohol. Um, for the normal person, you know, it would add perhaps 10 pence to a normal bottle of nor or a normal strength wine, um, whereas it, it has a more significant cost on high strength uh, lagers. So the, the statistics Morris was, was uh, referring to is that, you know, we know any, you know, a 10% increase in the price of alcohol would lead to a 5% decrease in its consumption. Uh, you know, we've, if you've looked at tobacco sales, um, they're quite regulated in terms of the forms of tax. And as we have seen tobacco increase in um, uh, cost over the years, we have also seen then a subsequent reduction in, in people uh, using or, or stopping tobacco. So, uh, you know, the same argument really um, uh, and evidence applies. And just to add to that, the, the, the early results in Scotland are, are very promising. So given the adoption in Scotland of minimum meat pricing, it, it appears to be having the uh, positive effects in terms of reducing high strength alcohol consumption among those who are have been previously seeking to, to purchase it at, at the lowest cost. Okay, um, thank you. You've given me some food for thought. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Alex. I have Robin, then Mark, and then Kelly. So, Robin. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank Mark Morrison and Michael for, for their evidence. Um, 
Could I? Uh, you just referred to Glasgow. Well, you referred to Scotland there on the minimum pricing. Uh, Glasgow and the history of Glasgow in terms of uh, alcohol abuse. Uh, it, it's very, very serious, as I understand it, at this moment in time. And there's a mm -hmm. connection, as I understand it, a connection between both the alcohol abuse and the drugs abuse in, in, in Glasgow. Could you perhaps uh, make some comments on that? Uh, can I maybe just pose another question to you? I'm intrigued by the very last line in your presentation. In addition, we would support the inclusion of an explicit statement that the protection of public health and promotion of well-being is a key objective of the Northern Ireland licensing legislation. Perhaps if you could expand on that. And uh, you didn't respond to the questions around the uh, small producers of beer, cider and spirits. Uh, basically, the... the <clears throat> Uh, where they're looking to, to perhaps be an asset in terms of, of uh, tourism. Uh, and you didn't respond to, to that uh, part at all. Maybe you would comment on that uh, as well. And thank you. Thank you, Robin. So, Michael, maybe could you deal with the issue of the reference to drugs and alcohol misuse and the correlation between drugs and alcohol misuse, if it can be refer referenced with its in Scotland, uh, but, it's, but, but the local profile here? Yeah, well, well, certainly Scotland has a long um, history and, and relationship with alcohol, as does um, Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, certainly, in, in some cases, the mortality rates um, and consumption rates are, are, are higher in, in parts of Scotland there. But, you know, equally uh, within the north here, um, you know, we have, have extremely high rates um, of, of um, uh, alcohol misuse as well. Um, in terms of the relationship with drugs, they, they are interconnected. People quite often ask, you know, talk about gateway drugs such as cannabis and whatever. As an agency, we will very strongly tell you the gateway drug to all um, uh, illicit drug use uh, is alcohol. Um, every child's literally first experience of a drug is alcohol because we do forget that alcohol is a drug. It's a very potent drug. It can be a fatal drug. Um, and we forget that because it's called alcohol and we have nice labels and lovely advertising that tells us how enjoyable this is. So, um, you know, if we look at drug-related deaths, 80% of those involve both drugs and alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant. Um, so if you add in other depressants, um, you know, this, this presents a serious risk of, of overdose, of respiratory failure, of cardiac failure. Um, so, you know, the, the, the relationship for us is very clear. Um, indeed, I think, I, you know, I, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the Department of Health, but I think that's why we have an alcohol and drug strategy. Um, it's not, you know, one or another, because as, as I say, we are, we are, you know, alcohol, quite frankly, is, is a drug. It's a legalized drug, but that doesn't make it an absolutely safe drug. Um, in terms of... Um, coming back just to the smaller smaller retailers or the smaller brewers, um, if I recall the reason we didn't actually respond to that was, was the actual question um, 
Yeah, what what uh, impact would you envisage this could have on tourism? Um, we, we, we didn't really think that was a question for us uh, to be answering. Um, I, I, and really, I don't know. It may increase tourism. It may not increase tourism. Um, our overall um, view, um, however, throughout our submission has been that, that any increase in availability um, will lead to increased uh, consumption across the population. Um, on that, Morris, do 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 you want to deal with then just the the initial or the last point around um, um, integrating public health objectives into licensing laws? Um, uh, making life better is our public health strategy. So essentially, we would we would encourage and invite um, uh, the the consideration of the uh, of, of 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 health public health and well-being consideration across all departments and across all policies so so um, if it is the case that um, health and well-being are referenced within the legislation then i think it strengthens the compulsion for consideration of uh, of proactive and protective measures associated with with health uh, because as michael uh, clearly and starkly has indicated alcohol uh, while pleasurable in moderation, is also a very harmful drug uh, in, in, in taken in excess. And, and we have the, the £900 million social cost um, uh, in terms of, of courts, prison, um, hospitals, um, social care uh, and early deaths, and, and therefore the economy uh, are, are very stark. So in that sense, I, I think we're, we're, we're kind of increasing um, with you the... Um, sense of the prioritisation of the health consequences uh, of, 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 of legislation. And, and perhaps if, if I could, could I maybe just add, add a practical example of where uh, the protection of public health and promotion of well-being is included in alcohol legislation, which we, which we have seen um, in, in England. And that's where the courts can actually take into account potential public health implications. So, for example, um, we know, for example, you know, and particularly in areas of disadvantage, they may have higher rates um, of, of you know, off sales of public houses within those areas. So courts then can take into account that by issuing a further license, that that may have a further impact, negative impact, um, on public health uh, locally. Um, so you know that that's just an example of, of of how some of that can work in terms of the overall licensing system. Yes, thank you, Chair. Thank you to Morris and Michael. Thank you. Okay, um, I have Mark and then I have Kelly. So, Mark. Thank you, Chair, and thanks to Michael and uh, Morris for that. Guys, I fully appreciate your concerns and understand where you're coming from. Uh, I wouldn't for one second uh, doubt the, the dangers or the cost of alcohol abuse and therefore would be extremely surprised if you were vocal advocates for any relaxation of the rules. However, I was wondering, is there any evidence that jurisdictions with similar opening hours to those proposed in the draft bill have experienced worse effects on the health and well-being of individuals, families and communities? I mean, are we in Northern Ireland necessarily in a better position than in England as a direct result of our current arrangements? Um, Morris, if you're happy, I'll pick up on that one. 
I appreciate that, Michael. Uh, I, I don't personally know how I could um, reference any evidence around the, 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 the comparative uh, data. All right. Um, I, I don't have the figures to hand, but yeah, I can ha I can send them through to the committee if needs be. Um, but the, you know, it's it's quite straightforward. Um, Northern Ireland currently has a higher consumption of alcohol for those who drink uh, than those do uh, within the population in England. Now, to put a balance on that, we actually also have the highest rate of abstainers um, uh, who don't drink alcohol at all. Uh, and that's right across Ireland as compared to um, England and Scotland and Wales. But the point being that for those who do decide to drink, we actually drink more um, than, than our English um, uh, 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 and Welsh counterparts. We drink slightly less than our, our Scottish counterparts um, uh, uh, from that. So I, I, you know, I, I don't have instances of specific um, Instances in other jurisdictions uh, that would be, you know, to tie down to exactly the provisions in this bill. But for us, it still comes back to 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 the overall point that any increase in availability, every study has shown um, that, that we have ever looked at over the last 30, 40 years, is that w that we have then subsequently seen um, a, an increase in population consumption. Um, you know, I, I think I described it earlier as the drip drip effect. Uh, we, we are now at a stage, I believe, certainly in, in Northern Ireland, where you know we have allowed so much to be introduced over the years, and some of that, um, uh, you know, has been referred to here. It's not certainly all about pubs um, or restaurants. A, a large portion of our problems now is the home drinking culture, um, and, and off sales, and, and promotions, and discounts, and, and certainly we did welcome. Um, a number of of the proposals in the bill, particularly around that area, for you know, for example, not getting um, loyalty points on a supermarket card for alcohol, um, etc. So, yeah, I do apologise. I've lost my train of thought. Can I ask the question again? What happens no, to me? No, I think, I think uh, well, maybe just when you're considering that, Michael. I mean, Mark, our, our overall health profile would suggest we're losing uh, 5,500 people in Northern Ireland are dying prematurely uh, uh, annually. Now, that, there's a lot of factors associated with the, 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 that statistic, and that is a fairly extensive loss of years of life expectancy. But alcohol does play a part. Uh, it's not by any means the only reason we have significant effects on the wider determinants of health, which highlight the issue about uh, our poverty prevalence uh, and, and, and many other social and economic factors. But alcohol, uh, excessive alcohol intake is definitely represents a direct correlation to hundreds of the year of, 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 of early deaths in Northern Ireland annually. So, and as public health agencies, as you, as you indicated, are uh, at the start. Our obligation is to think about how we can protect and improve our health uh, uh, health outcomes uh, and reduce health inequalities. So, so we are obliged to follow the evidence that would indicate that, for our from our perspective, increase in 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 ours, um, which could lead to uh, increased consumption, would be would be a, would be a negative um, from from our perspective. And, and again, I must reiterate, I'm not denying or in any way dismissing the dangers of, of, of alcohol abuse. But 
you know, in terms of the drip drip effect and any time there's been a relaxation, you know, or over the years of there, as there have been relaxations, there's been a, a, a trend that shows an increase in consumption. But is that increase in overall public consumption directly related to opening hours? And I, I mean, if we look at the lockdown, for example, I mean, bars have been closed for a long time now. Off licenses have uh, been closing earlier. Has that led to a big reduction in consumption? Uh, no, what, what we have seen through COVID is that for those who have continued to drink, what it has led to is stockpiling uh, of alcohol uh, to deal with the, stri- the restrictions, both in terms of off sales, uh, closing or, earlier, uh, and the lack, lack, lack of bars and restaurants. Now, again, it's still early days for us within COVID of trying to work through the alcohol behaviours. Um, we have also picked up that a significant number of people have also made very positive lifestyle changes, including either reducing their drinking or indeed stopping altogether and increasing their exercise. So, you know, to open an hours. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it, it's not directly linked to open an hours, is it? Uh, yes, if, if you increase opening hours, you increase accessibility to alcohol. I think in the societal change, I, I, I'm not sure that it's specifically related uh, to opening hours. And given your previous answer in terms of the experience in England, where the people here, where we have you know, more restrictive opening hours, the people here that do drink still do drink more than those who drink in England, even though they have more I heard, you know, they're, they, they've less restrictive opening hours. So, so I, it, it's sort of, I, I don't know if you know what I'm getting at, but I, 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 I think some of the, the committee might, it, it doesn't really stack up in terms of the, the points you make in regards to what's proposed as well around opening hours, in my view. I think you have to look at the complexities in the whole. We are making the case that if you increase availability to alcohol, we will see an increase in consumption, and we have presented evidence for that. Um, England has has a different set uh, of licensing laws, which includes public health measures. There's also a different. There's also a differing societal attitudes towards alcohol or to alcohol, um, and how we use it now. For, more about those societal attitudes, you know, and than it is about the the opening hours, and I, I know what well, there, there's a correlation perhaps between them, but I think the evidence of the lockdown, and I know you have a lot of work to do on that, probably demonstrates that it's it, it's not directly related to opening hours. Uh, to just. Uh, another one, and, and, and it's, a, it's a bit similar in, in, in terms of, and I can understand and, and, and accept the points you're making, and that you don't agree with the relaxation of rules around children and licensed premises, and you know, like children start to see alcohol as normal behaviour. Well, you know, there's a difference, I think, between seeing alcohol as normal behaviour and seeing alcohol abuse as normal behaviour. I'm just wondering in terms of the experience, again, elsewhere, not necessarily England, but if you look at the continent, where it is uh, very much the norm uh, for, for children to be in licensed premises as their parents or whoever has a responsible 
you know, is that reflected in terms of them them going on? Do, do they have issues with alcohol? Those children, do, do you know, because it's my understanding that you use the guys with the, the the knowledge and the expertise and this the places that are more liberal in that regard actually suffer less or the population or suffers less in terms of, of alcohol addiction and abuse? Um, well, you, 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 you've made a, a, a salient point. Uh, it's what children do observe with, with alcohol. Um, what, what we have, what children observe in, in, in Northern Ireland is because of the level of our binge drinking. Binge drinking is much... Uh, less, for example, in, in the Mediterranean com uh, countries uh, than it is here. So, you know, and alcohol is used in a different way and a less harmful way, quite frankly. Uh, whereas we have a problem of, of we have uh, alcohol use used in a more harmful way in terms that we do have a culture of binge drinking. And when I talk about binge drinking, by the way, it is defined as having five or more drinks in one session. Yeah. And I know uh, some people say, oh, that's not a binge, a binge is going on on the whole week. But it, 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 you know, that's how we actually define uh, a binge drinking. So the, 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 and we do have a habit here, uh, you know, again, the culture in Northern Ireland. Uh, and again, I'm talking pre-COVID here, but, you know, come the weekend and we go partying um, at the weekend. So this is the type of alcohol use behaviours that we are concerned that, that, that children would be further exposed to. So whilst I accept your, you know, again, the, the point being that, that children in other like Mediterranean countries, they're observing a different type of alcohol behaviour than potentially than what they're observing here uh, because of the nature and pattern of our alcohol use. Yeah, but the, the, could it be a chicken and egg sort of thing here? Are, are the different societal attitudes done, maybe down the fact that uh, the children are able to go and sit and see people drinking responsibly? You know, and, and whenever you're out, it's generally maybe a, a celebration or, or an event or whatever, and people drink, drinking responsibly rather than children at home, you know, and, and being exposed. The, the people drinking irresponsibly. Our key message is it doesn't matter where the child sees their responsible behaviour. Where the child sees their responsible behaviour, you know that that will 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 have, uh, uh, you know, make uh, some form of an impact. Again, you know, it's not just seeing something; it's also about. I talked earlier about how a child is most influenced by um, their own parents or carers in terms of developing their own attitudes and values. Um, around alcohol, it's it's how we use alcohol in Northern Ireland. We use it very differently from from countries like like uh, France, uh, Greece, um, and Spain. Um, and so you know that that's actually reflected in our level of alcohol deaths, our levels of uh, liver disease, which is higher than than than, than all of those countries. Um, uh, so you know that that's that's where I'm trying to come from. It's it's it's. You know, yes, if, if children were exposed on every occasion to responsible drinking, that would be quite different. But the evidence tells us that they're quite often exposed to irresponsible drinking. Yeah, but it, it just and, sort of... And for us, and for us that difference... Conservative or restrictive approach isn't working. It's not working, per se. 
Uh, Mark, you, you are raising you're raising a number of, of complex areas about the nature of our society and culture and behaviours and so on, and, and so much of that is 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 likely to be changed by multiple factors in terms. Uh, uh, but from a public health perspective, I think we are giving you, I suppose, a, fir a firm position based on our analysis. So I. I, I suspect then it's up to the committee to then think about the balance of perspectives that you're receiving but but, but we we would be firm in our kind of um, uh, in our in our position uh, relative to the other other perspectives you you will receive and, and, and i mean I, I would fully subscribe to your, or concur with uh, your view around minimum unit pricing for example I, I think that's bang on and that's something we definitely have to do that's not this bill isn't necessarily the vehicle to do that, but that's something certainly uh, that, that does need to be done, and we, we've seen the positive impact of that in, in Scotland. But now I'll, I'll just wrap up, I suppose, maybe with, with one final question. That would be that should this bill pass as proposed, you know, I don't just, there, there will be further amendments. Uh, whilst bearing in mind your opposition, do you think would there be any measures that could help allay your concerns around public health? Mark, do you want me to pick up on that, or? Um, yeah, well, well, yeah. I think I think um, our, our 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 duty, I suppose, our formal duty is to give you an analysis based on evidence and health profile, um, and 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 concerns about uh, about uh, alcohol consumption. Um, uh, and uh, the potential risks based on the current proposal for expansion of ours about increased consumption. Uh, that, that, that's our, that, that's our, I suppose, conclusion. Um, uh, we, we are not indicating that. Um, we're, we're indicating that the evidence is that this could make what is a problem already in our society in Northern Ireland around alcohol uh, 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 slightly worse. Um, but we, but alcohol, uh, and al over excessive alcohol consumption, um, is a public health challenge uh, currently as it is. Uh, the issue would be that whether we're in we're indicating that this could make it uh, marginally um, uh, increase risks to some extent further, uh, based on the profile of need that we're seeing that uh, that that we see as a consequence of alcohol damage. Right, Michael. Um, yeah, it's it's um, you know I, I guess when you say is there anything to mitigate, well, our, our basic position is is not to go ahead with it, but what you know what we have said is that you know we would support uh, the inclusion of of explicit statement uh, of an explicit statement or statements um, within the legislation with regards to uh, the protection of public health and the promotion of, of well-being um, as an overall key objective in terms of of any uh, changes going forward. No, no, again, I don't underestimate at all the, the, the size of the challenge. It's a massive challenge that we all have to, 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 to face and take on. But I've just thought of one more thing, sorry about this, folks. And it was in term, I know you didn't comment in terms of the proposals around uh, local brewers and, and the in that regard. I probably felt that was outside of, of your bailiwick. But given that, and, and having heard from a number of, of local brewers, uh, at this stage, that we're talking here generally about a higher value product and a more expensive product. I know you'd said like around opening tap rooms per se would be increasing availability, 
but given that these are more generally, like I say, expensive uh, products, would, would that impact on, on your view at all? Um, well, no, not in terms of... Uh, I'm not sure I totally understand the question, Mark, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and address it, I, I, I guess. Ask it properly. <laughs> I, I understand it, but it probably just doesn't articulate it. Uh, articulated if, if our, our local beers or, or, or craft beers and with a lady on there who produces uh, cider are more expensive generally than, than what is more widely available with mm-hmm. the entry yeah. the end of the market or the promotion of these as they're more expensive uh, you know could that not have a positive impact as well well, okay, yes, I think I'm moving with your question now. If, if we're talking about those 10% of most harmful drinkers um, in Northern Ireland, there'll not be any customers of, of those um, of those type of establishments um, because they, they are seeking high-strength, um, cheap alcohol. So, you know, it's, it's very unlikely that that 10% of most harmful drinkers in Northern Ireland will be part of the custom. I guess the concern we would have, uh, and I think what you're what you're alluding to is that because of it being a higher cost product, that we w- would see potentially a similar effect that minimum unit pricing has. What I would say to you is, it's a different customer. The customer who's going for that probably has, uh, you know, a greater income um, and and less disadvantage uh, than 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 those that we would be targeting uh, within minimum unit pricing. And I, I guess the, the point I'm, I'm making here is that, that, you know, your income doesn't protect you necessarily from the level of alcohol you take. Um, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're going over the weekly units, it really doesn't matter whether you're buying a high-cost product, a mid-range product, or a cheap product. The fact is that if you're going by those guidelines, um, uh, you're increasing your risks from, from alcohol-related harm. So... You know, it's, it's, it's very, again, for us, it's just the basic principle that, that the wider you make alcohol available over the population, and I think it's important to realize that we come at this from a population viewpoint, uh, you know, not put specific groups as such, but the overall population consumption, uh, you know, is, 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 is clearly correlated that increased availability leads to increased population consumption overall. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for that. Okay, thank you, Mark. Um, I just want to make a point on something Mark was saying there. I think there is a great misconception out there that uh, around other countries around the world um, that there are issues around alcoholism and alcohol-related harm um, is, is not highlighted to the same extent, and especially those countries where alcohol is very accepted as part of normal daily life. I remember reading a paper uh, about Spain a couple of years ago, and their equivalent of the PHA were, were running a really big, massive campaign for, and I'm not talking about holidaymakers, it's their own citizens, because of the cost of, of alcohol-related harm um, in Spain itself. So, I, I, I mean, I sometimes I think we look at these other countries where we see families out for dinner round the table, 
um, enjoying a glass of wine with their dinner and all of these other things. But we also see um, others who are having their breakfast in the morning along with a, a glass of wine or a pint. And the Spanish government very much had realised that they have major alcohol-related issues uh, amongst their citizens um, and were trying their very best to, to, to reduce the alcohol consumption uh, within Spain. So I think other countries, we, we don't often see that side of it. We see sometimes not, a, a better picture I'm, than that, but it is happening. I, I'm not trying to look at that through rose-tinted glasses or rosé-tinted glasses, Chair, uh, but, but I don't know if that, that you'd seen what the Spanish PHA equivalent were doing, how much of, of that problem they, I suppose, laid at the door of the fact that kids could go into areas that served alcohol. I don't know. I know it's very complex, and I don't expect us to, to, to answer no, it today. It's just, I think it's just to say about just about societal more than anything. Not any, not any. What are the contributing factors to it? But it's just societal issues. Um, and I'm certainly yeah. someone who is far from teetotal. I have to say, I do like a drink, and I'm I'm not against it in any way. Um, but there there are lots of other issues out there that we don't, you know, that that lead to these problems that are not necessarily, um, as you were saying, Mark, that are, you can't pin them down to one thing. Is the the contributing factor, you know, yeah. but sorry to butt in there. Um, I know I have, I have Kelly waiting and I have Andy waiting as well, so good Kelly. Here's Kelly. No, we haven't got Rick Kelly in. There we go. We've got her. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much, Morris and Michael. Um, to be honest, I have been waiting patiently on this type of evidence coming through. It is a vital part of um, our considerations. Um, we know that there is alcohol abuse within our um, society, but we have alcohol in our society. Um, this licensing law is not going to remove alcohol from it. So I just wanted to ask you a, couple, a few clarification questions. You're absolutely right. We do use alcohol differently than Mediterranean countries. And I remember back in the dark ages when I was at uni, um, I remember reading a study uh, about Northern Ireland, and I don't believe it has changed so much in all those years that um, our, the way that we drink alcohol in Northern Ireland is different from other places. And while we may drink um, less than Scotland, what we tend to do is instead of going to the pub at lunchtime and having a half pint while you read your newspaper, what we do in Northern Ireland is we save it all up for a Friday or Saturday night. And when people go out drinking, they mean it. Um, and it normally ends up in, in quite drunken behaviour. Now, there are people who can drink safely um, and, and respect alcohol. So I'm just wondering on the clarification point, um, in this um, document that you have sent us, which is, is really helpful, um, you've, you've talked about you're not interested in any changes um, to children being in bars or the extension of, of drinking time or the extended licensing hours. Um, but I was just wondering, in your analysis, have you looked at um, how we could do things differently by accepting that alcohol in society and in order to manage that alcohol better in society, we consider things like promoting children saying responsible drinking. Um, what would be, you know, it would have been useful to see as part of the licensing regime, some sort of an enforcement clause like PHA suggesting um, ways that we could, um, you know, bring in enforcement issues. So if, if a bar or a licensed premises um, continually has issues at, you know, closing time or throughout the, the, the evening, uh, that there could be an enforcement issue brought in with the license that the license then could 
be revoked or, or limits put on that license. I'm just wondering, is there anything from your analysis that, that looks at it, not just from saying no um, and saying that, that these things are not a good idea, but that actually says this is how we need to work with this alcohol that's in society? Morris, do you want me? Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, yeah, Morris yeah. and I are both yeah. on phones, so it's hard to see each other, or we, we can't yeah. see each other. Do you want to pick up, or would you like me to to uh, respond? Um, uh, yeah, no, no, go ahead. Well, Kelly, just uh, I think it, we're we're pleased to know that at least the robust evidence and the robust position that we're representing here at least is a firm consideration for you. Um, uh, very happy to fur further clarify any of the evidence and research references um, uh, or the prevalence uh, issues um, or, uh, or the consequence issues because they are severe and if it is the case that we are all as a society trying to turn the curve in terms of our overall direction of reducing um, uh, early deaths uh, and increasing life expectancy, particularly for those who are going to be at greater risk associated with, uh, with with increased alcohol consumption then 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 then, then much more needs done so and, and uh, our position is 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 solidly pointing the committee to the to the consequences of, of alcohol legislation currently and the risks associated with the uh, with with, the, with some of the measures within within the proposed bill uh, Michael um, yeah uh, again Kelly thanks for your comments I think that the two key strategic drivers um, for ourselves, uh, one would be minimum unit pricing, um, which, which we've already talked about uh, in the, this discussion. Certainly, we, we believe the evidence is clear on that in terms of reducing harm um, for, for, the, for those most harmful drinkers uh, uh, in our society. And, and again, we're encouraged by the results and evaluations that are starting to come out of Scotland uh, on the terms of the effect of their minimum unit pricing. I think the other strategic area for us, um, and again, I'm, I'm not sure perhaps we, we have, have explained ourselves well enough on that, is the introduction of, of um, promoting public health and, and well-being as part of any, an overall uh, legislative framework. Now, by that, I, I guess some of that is where we've looked at, at other areas, such in England, where, where uh, public health is incorporated. And I know their licensing laws are different, different to ours, but again, you know that that has allowed where perhaps you have i don't like to use the term but yeah a, a problem bar or a repeat offender where you know you're regularly having issues at closing time antisocial behavior underage drinking you know the whole raft of things that that you can see um you know there the, the local uh police the local courts uh the um in terms of of responding to those and looking uh, at the issuing of licenses. So public health are having a direct input then in terms of, 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 of localities uh, and of being able to manage issues around where uh, establishments which may be poorly managed, you know, not, not um, you know, like, you know, like one of our pieces of legislation is, is that someone should not be served who's intoxicated. We've all been in bars where we've seen people who are clearly intoxicated continue to be served alcohol. Um, so I, I think for, for me, that's the two key issues, or for the agency, it's the two key issues, is the minimum unit pricing, uh, which we you know believe will have a, an absolute uh, positive impact uh, on a population approach, 
and the greater uh, involvement or input of public health into licensing, both licensing legislation and decisions. Yeah, uh, it's interesting on that one because um, I noted your response about the voluntary codes of practice and, you know, rather than being voluntary, that they should be statutory. Uh, that That's what I wanted to tease out from yourselves. Do you believe that the PHA or is it the trusts or or who is it um, if there's if there is a code of practice and it's it's a statutory code, um, who would it be from health that would have an input into that? And I, I'm assuming I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming you would like to see that that code of practice would be reflected upon at license renewal time or, you know, if there's an enforcement issue. Well, absolutely. We would believe that would be, be part of the consideration of, of relicensing um, on terms. Now, when we talk about that, having you know, statutory approval, obviously in terms of enforcement, that would be an issue for um, criminal justice colleagues. Uh, but absolutely, the PHA um, uh, would be, be more than willing to be, be um, um, involved uh, and assist uh, in terms of, of, of developing those guidelines. The point for us is we believe it needs to be um, a, a statutory have a statutory basis. Um, our, our experience, uh, both as a public health agency since 2009 and previously as health boards, is that voluntary codes of practice rarely are, are, are rarely as effective um, uh, as a statutory code of practice of with rigorous enforcement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm just thinking um, in particular, for instance. I don't know. At this moment in time, you can you can advise me on this. We could have bars. Doesn't matter where they are. Um, at at you know time drinking up time and when people leave the bar, where you could have an ambulance outside. There's there's violence maybe on the street. There's there's people who are very intoxicated. We obviously know about sadly um attacks that happen whether they're sexual or physical. Um, as far as PHA is concerned, is there an easy way for that type of external behaviour to the to the bar, the, the licensed premises to be collated or is that would that need to come from the police as opposed to from yourselves? I'm just thinking about the pressures that are put on the ambulance service, the A departments. Um, um would that be able to be if, if if this was a statutory code, would that be the sort of information that would be easily available without creating too much cost or too much pressure um for the PHA to be a, a statutory advisor or you know have a statutory role? In that that statute in a statutory code. Morris, do you want to? Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think uh, the, it, in the context of the adoption of the statutory measures, uh, we would very certainly be seeking, obviously through clarification of our uh, role and roles relative to the Department of Health, um, uh, we, we would very much invite um, uh, involvement because. The opportunity to bring together, uh, you know, accident and emergency data, ambulance data, uh, alongside uh, policing and uh, justice colleagues, uh, alongside uh, uh, the Department of Communities, for example, that joined up thinking about cause and effect and whether there's a localized problem and localized solutions uh, would, would, would be incredibly um, better joined up dialogue, I think, between public health uh, industry um, and and and. Uh, 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 criminal justice uh, and policing. And do you think that that would help um, license the person who holds the license then to, to um, consider 
the impact, you know, so that if someone does turn up, as you say, intoxicated, to be honest, do you say if I turned up at a bar and had a pint of cider, I would be intoxicated because um, I'm not a big, big drinker. Um, at that level of intoxication, it's not a case that they breathalyze people because you could breathalyze me and I could be completely out of it um, and not having had an awful lot, whereas somebody else maybe can cope with an awful lot more alcohol than, than I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering if, if there was that impact on their license, do you think that license holders then would would take foot? A lot of them are quite responsible. I'm not, I'm not going to say that, that, that they're all terrible because they're not, um, but I'm just thinking of those areas is where there are, you know, outside the bars and. Uh... Yeah, I, I think I think it's very very helpful consideration um, uh, about the actions that would be incumbent upon the license holder. Um, some of those actions may be beyond the license holder. We know, uh, for example, that we are seeing a shift in 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 preloading, as 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 young people call it. Uh, uh, behaviour so that people are consuming significant amounts of alcohol at home before going to bars. So, so all of the um, uh, responsibilities may not be on the bar owner, but the consequences of someone being drunk are, 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 are significant numbers of people um, um, you know, continuing to receive alcohol uh, in, in a site and, and the related behaviours that might be seen outside of the licensed premises. I think uh, that, 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 would, that would possibly shift uh, shift the dynamic uh, around that uh, cause and effect. And can I also ask about off licenses? Now, I live in a rural area and there are off licenses sell a range of products, but there's always, always an issue with young people getting access to alcohol that has probably and normally has been bought for them by an adult out of an off license. Um, I'm trying to think there when, with regards to licensing of off licenses, because we have been asked about extending off license you know, licenses to other um, premises, like for instance, the, the people who we heard from earlier today. Um, I'm just wondering, with that off license then, do you think that there should be some sort of a, a, a statutory code of practice with regards to off licenses that if if that off license fails to deliver or fails to um, sort of manage who's buying alcohol, um, that, that they could lose their license too and PHA could have a role in that? Michael? Yeah, so, well, well, certainly we, we would have tremendous concerns with regards to off, off sales uh, because we know that's driving. Uh, a lot of the home drinking, Morris talked about preloading there. You know, certainly the culture of younger people now, you know, I, I hate to show my age over the phone, but in my day, if you were going down the pub, you went down the pub around 7 or 7.30. Um, they tell me now that basically they, they, they don't arrive into the pubs to half 10 or 11. Um, and can be already well stacked up. And again, I would come back to minimum unit pricing. A large amount of those drinks that young people are stocking up with are high high alcohol, cheap alcoholic drinks, and minimum unit pricing would, would have uh, um, an impact there as well. I, I do have a, a sympathy for um, the level of placing that we perhaps expect um, off licenses to carry out. I think it's very clear that we're obviously, uh, you know, a, you know uh, where a person is clearly buying alcohol for a young person that, that we would expect uh, staff to have adequate training and being able to deal with that and refuse sale. Um, but, you know, equally we're aware, unfortunately, in some cases of parents buying um, alcohol for their own children um, of, uh, uh, and others. We're aware of, of illegal alcohol sales to young people. 
uh, uh, via you know various routes and, and, and you know road taxis, what what whatever you want to call these things. So certainly off sales, you know I, I think a lot for us as an agency perhaps is is how off sales staff uh, are trained, trained to recognise potential problems, trained to you know implement uh, a code of you know. Um, you know, think 25 or, or think 21 in terms of, of seeking, um, you know, IDs and also, again, recognising where, where there is potential for someone maybe buying alcohol for, for, for uh, you know, someone underage. Um, but again, I think, um, you know, certainly I would agree, Kelly, that if, if uh, an off-licence, a particular off-licence in a particular area is repeatedly ignoring those things, then for me it is an enforcement issue. Um, and that you know, with a statutory code of practice where someone is is is, is just obstinately ignoring it, that actually effective action can then be taken in terms of either uh, moderating or adapting or removing that that license for that business. And finally, chair, thank you very much, um, Morrison. I, wa- I wanted to ask you something. If if this legislation proceeds as it currently is set down, where the extended times you know happen for bars being open and the drinking up time, that that effectively moves, um, say in Belfast City Centre, it moves people coming out at around one half one two o'clock later. And I'm not going to ask about the money because it's it's finger in the air for that one. But I'm thinking about the pressure on any departments. Um, so. We will still have people who will not be able to cope with the alcohol that they have consumed that need to leave a bar at 11 o'clock, as we will those that come out at 12, 1. But if we take it right through to 2 and there's people knocking around at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm just wondering, anybody who's been to A&E on a Friday or Saturday night knows that they're in for a long wait. There's normally lots of police there. There are people who are intoxicated. There can be violence. Um, But I'm just wondering... What is the human impact in any departments for that period of time to be extended? Is it just a little bit more, or are we expecting you know another twenty percent of additional um, pressures? In, I'm just trying to work out if there if there, if it's just more of the same or. Kelly, I, I would say that you're right to say that there will be an inevitable correlation between the um, uh, the later closing times and the presentations to um, action and emergency. Whether those are going to be worse uh, or, or more intense as a consequence of increased consumption, uh, I think we, we, we have indicated our concern that there could be uh, the issue about impact and, and, and flow into action and emergency. Uh, will, will certainly have an effect within action emergency departments, ambulances, and, and policing. Uh, but again, I, I can't really quantify that. But but the the the, the in, there would be an increased risk in terms of the alcohol consumption, um, the potential kind of uh, you know uh, disorder and violent implications. Um, uh, uh, th- th- those are there. We we are seeing some of those challenges associated with. Uh, with uh, with uh, with weekend drinking in city centres, town centres, uh, those are being managed currently within within current process. The, but it, later hours will will shift the times that the, you will see increased presentations to to action emergency. There's, there's no doubt about that. Can I just ask and and excuse my ignorance on this, but shift patterns within A and E and and hospitals. Um, I'm just thinking. 
I take it staff come on, I don't know what time, say 11 o'clock, and they would be right through until whatever time. Does it cause an issue with shift patterns or or is that okay uh, the way it currently stands? Michael, any thoughts? Yeah, as Kelly, it's, it's, it's perhaps difficult for us in the PHA because we are not the commissioners of services within within ED, so we, we wouldn't necessarily have that level of information. That would be with the Health and Social Care Board. But being a, a, being a registered nurse myself and in the past and, and knowing colleagues in ED, well, you know, shift patterns are different. Certainly the, the traditional night duty shift pattern is, is, is a 12-hour shift, 8 to 8. Um, but obviously local EDs in terms of their own staffing pressures, I would imagine would be very much uh, perhaps adapting their shifts around, uh, you know, pressured times. You know, anecdotally talking to my colleagues and again, the trusts, uh, each of the hospital trusts and or the Health and Social Care Board would be better placed to comment on this. I'm, I'm not sure whether you're hearing from them or not, but, you know, certainly, you know, I guess at the minute when you speak to colleagues that, you know, they talk about the, you know, the, the worst of the night being tending to be over by, by you know, 3 or 4 a.m., uh, whereas beforehand, you know, as the bars start to empty, the nightclubs start to empty, they know they're looking at that three or four hours of not just dealing with those seriously um, ill people, maybe with, with uh, you know, cardiac arrests or heart issues or car accidents, but also a level of, of very much alcohol-related casualties. Unfortunately, some of those casualties will be abusive, both verbally, both both uh, physically, um, and and yes, that you know that 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 is a pressured area uh, where you're working. And I'm I'm uh, 35 years in the health service now, and I remember starting off in casualty and and, and those days, and and I've watched levels of abuse and and threats and physical violence increase almost year upon year um, and certainly uh, you know the vast vast majority of that all linked to 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 uh, patients who have consumed alcohol and in most cases are are intoxicated mm -hmm. i'll not take any more of your time just in case anybody else needs to come in but thank you very much um to both of you, um, you, as I say, it was something that I have been patiently waiting on us getting evidence um, for and about, um, because it is the side of, of licensing and alcohol that um, we do need to be cognizant of and, and to balance whenever we're making our considerations. So thank you very much. Thanks, Kelly. There certainly are people waiting to come in. Um, we've got Andy and then we've got Sinead. And can I just on a point um, that Kelly brought up there? Um, to do with getting evidence from the trusts, etc. Um, the chief medical officer um, was asked uh, to come in and brief the committee, but due to COVID pressures, is unable to do that, but is sending a written briefing. So just to let you know that. Um, Andy, yeah. yourself, and then Sinead. Andy. Thanks, Chair. And I'll come as no surprise, Martin Kelly covered uh, the majority of the points that I was going to make. Um, can I just mm. ask a quick question in relation to the adult drinking pattern, pattern survey 2013, which you've referenced in your uh, consultation response? Is there any more up-to-date data? I think when we received research briefings, it was indicated that there isn't. Some of the data in that is very useful, but it'd be much more helpful to see the current trends. And I do appreciate, obviously, COVID will have somewhat thrown a spanner into the works in respect to that. Um, again, that, that's something we're in discussions. The, the most of, of our 
um, surveys are undertaken by the, the Department of Health and Department of Education in terms of uh, children and young people. Um, certainly, I'm, I, I, I'm looking at that myself. And, and I'm sorry, having been the person who filled in this paper, I, I do want to go back and check if we have any more prevalent data because I'm pretty sure we do. Uh, so I, I have to hold my hands up and say that may be an error on my part. Um, uh, but I, if, if your people are happy with that, I'll, I'll take a fresh look um, at the statistics and undertake to come back via the, the clerk or the chair of the committee. Yeah, exactly. um, uh, uh, Andy, just, just a, uh, one point would be that uh, it is, uh, everything's been affected by COVID at the moment, but the 10-year census is planned to be undertaken in March of this year. That, that, that is a really critical kind of uh, platform for data uh, and will include some uh, uh, health, uh, behavior, behavior um, questions and alcohol questions. So we can certainly then review to determine the questions that are being asked as part of the census for 2021, uh, the, 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 the alcohol-related kind of questions that are going to end there. Uh, but that, that we certainly are in for what will be very important comprehensive data that will flow from, from the 10-year census um, uh, uh, due, due March 2021. Thank you very much. Um, and, and you know, it's important to obviously lay out that um, I, I, for one, don't underestimate the impact of alcohol-related harm uh, and it, when it's taken in the wider societal context. And I think looking at the, the survey data that's been presented and in your consultation response, you know, you've highlighted binge drinking and obviously the, the drinking within the, the pub uh, environment. But it, I suppose it would be true uh, to say that looking at those survey responses, perhaps the, the greatest uh, and most significant impact that we faced is the alcohol consumption within the household. And that's not to pit pubs and restaurants uh, against that consumption within the household. But would, would you agree with that? Would you agree that uh, within the household, that is where we face our most significant problem? Um, I, I think um, you've described it as in the household, and from that uh, perspective, we, we would agree with you. It is the home drinking, but the source of the home drinking is off sales. So uh, you know, sometimes I think we we kind of lose lose the focus when we talk about home drinking, because what we're actually talking about is is off sales, and there is no doubt that that the advent of increased off sales, um, off sales via the supermarkets. Alcohol, as I said earlier, now being, you know, in, in terms of um, the, the economics being cheaper than 30 years ago, um, that has certainly fueled um, a, a, an increase in uh, uh, the use of alcohol um, over the last um, uh, 10 years. You know, uh, but also it should not be under influence or, or underestimated the power of alcohol advertising. Um, certainly, you know, uh, women are, are now um, either equal with their male counterparts or out drinking their male counterparts in some type, and we can correlate that to direct um, industry advertising uh, targeting women over a number of years. Again, we can also see whilst young people are, are overall drinking less than they have been in the past, those who are drinking are drinking in a more harmful way. And again, it's, it's quite easy to see uh, in terms of how the industry have targeted young people um, uh, over the years, particularly with the introduction of, of, of uh, you know, what, what, what would traditionally be known as the alcohol pops type culture. Um, so whilst home drinking 
is a, a major matter of concern for us. It's the accessibility issue argument to come back to again that you know we've seen a wider accessibility to alcohol through that off-sale uh, expansion and, and the reduction overall in price and therefore we have seen an overall increase in consumption in the population. No, that, that, it's a fair point and I suppose and I know you've been asked this by uh, previous uh, committee members, Kelly and Mark, uh, the, and, and, and in dealing with that and what one aspect would be minimum unit pricing but, and, and you'd highlighted advertising, are there other considerations in, in respect to that that we should be looking at? I think we referenced the promotions, uh, the, uh, the the use of promotions or, or reduction of alcohol within uh, within promotion uh, within bars is it seems to be problematic um, uh, in terms of the uh, risk of of significant uh, increased consumption uh, linked to linked to promotions. Um, yeah, and, and just, just a final point, and Mark, you'd be glad to know that uh, I got your line of question in respect of uh, the points around the uh, availability and, and increase, increased opening hours, and I'd be very keen to see that, that data from across other jurisdictions, because, you know, I, I would like to be able to compare that, because it, I think it was teased out through that uh, dialogue, our societal pot patterns here in Northern Ireland, uh, and I think COVID has displayed that in, in respect of, of where we are, but I'll, I'll leave it there, Chair. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Um, then I'll bring in Sinead. Hi, Sinead. Thank you, Chair, um, and thanks very much for your time today. It's been very, very useful. Uh, you know, I suppose Mark and Kelly have covered an awful lot of it, and like Andy, I, I, I suppose I got Mark's line of questioning and, and probably concur with a lot of what, what Mark has said. Just a small, quick point. Um, I don't think it's been mentioned yet. Um, because this, this bill proposes to increase the number of licences for um, major events. Um, and would the PHA have a specific view on that or any har any risks or any harms associated with, with those type of events specifically? Um, it, it will come back to Morris, you may want to come on this. It, for, for us, it's the general, general principle of increased availability. Um, and again, I suppose it depends what we're talking about in terms of major events, because major there can be a number of very different uh, aspects of different events. So, you know, again, I'm thinking of, of the festival culture in terms particularly of young people, uh, where we know that there's going to be an audience that, 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 that both there, there will be, be issues around alcohol, there will be issues around drugs. Um, but then as you compare that as to an event like the Open in Port Rush, I, I hope that's perhaps me trying to make my make, make a point that when we talk about a major major events that there may be differing. But overall, again, if our legislation was introduced or didn't get through in time because of whatever reasons of where the open was was looking to uh, to 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 uh, I think sell alcohol. Um, and again, it seemed to me, you know, uh, from that point of view. But for us, the key question again is, is that no matter what the source is, whether it's a major event, whether it's a small event, whether it's a off sales or whether it's a pub, our basic principle is, is that if we increase availability, then we will inevitably see some level of, of increase in overall population consumption. Morris? Yeah, I, I don't think I have anything else further to add. I think we'll work, we'll work on that principle that our, our key point is that where you have um, uh, increased um, 
uh, increased open hours, there is a risk of uh, increased consumption. And, and I think there's points have been made here that we will certainly be happy to work with you on around whether there's any comparative data to show that uh, the increased hour has any statistical increase in consumption, but 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 but, our, but in other jurisdictions as comparators, but 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 that would be our bottom line concern. Okay, thank you. Thanks, thanks, Sinead. Um, just before you go, can I just ask you one last question, and it's to do with um, the various campaigns that the public health agency are involved in, uh, whether that's radio or television campaigns or advertising. Um, is there anything at the moment ongoing to do with um, anything related to alcohol consumption? Any campaigns? Um, we, we have no um, specific campaigns at the moment. You'll appreciate our, our communications team. Uh, are very much um, everything this year has been pretty much about around messaging through COVID. Though through part of that campaigning, we have used blogs, we have used social media, um, we have used press releases. Most recently, um, only last week, on terms of of the further lockdown and particularly focusing on not not stockpiling um, um, uh, alcohol at home, we continue to regularly, and I, by that I mean on a weekly basis, use our our social media channels, and we can target very messages there to, to specific uh, portions of, of the community um, in terms of, of, of alcohol and, and both drugs. As part of our COVID response, and Morris, you may want to pick up on this, we have published regular blogs um, uh, through through our website, and, and, and a number of those have included um, advice and guidance in around alcohol. And as ever, we, we, we do have a range of published um, uh, communications, uh, which are, are, can all be downloaded uh, from our website. Uh, that includes you know, talking to your child about alcohol. It includes alcohol and you. Um, and we also have, have uh, uh, there's links there then to our drug and alcohol website, where there's a wide range of resources, including all services that, that can offer help to someone who is having issues with alcohol or drugs in your local area and as MLAs, I would I would really strongly suggest that you be aware of that, particularly uh, of being able to signpost your constituents who you may be coming into contact with, uh, because quite often we're told uh, there's no help there for drugs and alcohol. There is, and there is in every trust area across Northern Ireland, commissioned both by ourselves and the Health and Social Care Board. Okay. So a component of our, uh, a component of our uh, focus and messaging is on family support, a very holistic approach to, to prevention and, and support and increased risks that uh, exist during COVID. Uh, but many of those risks for families do pre-exist, pre, pre, pre uh, pre uh, COVID. So, so we have been focusing our family support um, uh, you know, around uh, ensuring that we are picking up families who may have concerns around increased alcohol consumption. We know that we definitely have strong data around increased domestic violence um, during 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 the lockdown. So, so uh, and we know that alcohol uh, excessive alcohol consumption is a factor associated with that increase in domestic violence. So, 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 uh, not no. The short answer is we have no formal TV or poster campaigns going on. But as Michael has indicated, we are using blogs, social media, um, press releases. Uh, and we are certainly maintaining key key messages and guidance around alcohol and drugs. Okay. 
No, look, thank you for that update, and I do understand that COVID has taken precedence, but one of the results of COVID is, ha is the amount of alcohol that's being drunk at, at, at home um, at the moment, and, and as you say, that has led to other problems, whether that's domestic violence or domestic abuse or, you know, um, safeguarding issues with children and various other issues, and I just say it because... I know that any of the campaigns that the PHA have been part of have been really very good campaigns and really hard-hitting and, and are so effective in getting the message home. Um, so uh, it wasn't a criticism for, for not having any done because I know that you do it so well. I have Robin who just wants to ask a quick supplementary, I think, on that. Yes, uh, thank you, Chair. It's a, it's on, on your first point, you raised, Chair, the uh, cost of $900 million a year on the social cost of alcohol-related harm. Uh, you, you'd made uh, just some comments there, Morris or Michael, about the um, domestic abuse and child abuse. Does that also, that 900 million, does that include that area as well, or are there additional costs? Yes, um, so, so my, my, uh, the, the 900 million will be partly made up of um, uh, the cost of those who would be imprisoned um, uh, as a consequence of alcohol-related offences. Um, it will also take account of the loss of employment uh, it, uh, as a consequence of uh, years of life lost um, uh, and, the, and the direct cost of, of, of interventions associated with health and social care and action emergency. Michael, or any other components of the of the 900 million? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have them right in front of front of my hand. The the figure actually is from 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 Northern Ireland's drug and alcohol strategy, um, uh, as part of, of their context, which is uh, currently being reviewed currently being reviewed and due for publication this year. Um, I would imagine that the CMO's briefing um, will will make reference to that plus any updated figures. But certainly, I will pull out the full list uh, from the strategy and, and send it through to the chair and/or the clerk of, of the committee, because it, it certainly uh, there's a wide range of components of which Morris has ha uh, has referenced there. But I just can't be 100% sure we've covered everything, Morris. So I'd want to double check and just resubmit it to to the committee. Uh, Robin, maybe as a bounce off from from your question, uh, the point that Michael made there is that the Department of Health are uh, have now issued their substance misuse strategy, substance use strategy, including alcohol and drugs, uh, which is designed to be an interdepartmental strategy, um, which will carry us forward for 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 the next decade. So there there maybe is a is a key opportunity now in terms of our conversation today around some of the issues about the um, introduction of health and well-being within the statutory legislation. Um, and some joined up thinking between Department of Communities and Department of Health via the substance use strategy about how we could maybe achieve some of those measures uh, within within legislation. So, so a key window is open. Um, uh, you know, maybe the opportunity for consideration of some of those measures, uh, including uh, minimum uh, use, minimum unit pricing, and so on. Uh, there might be a set of issues which. Um, are raised overall that, that that certainly would be very productively um, mean could be could be rooted through to the Department of Health uh, in the context of that strategy. It certainly would be my intention to ask the chair about the protection of public health and promotion of well-being as a key objective. So I certainly will follow up on that one. Okay. Look, thank. 
Thank you. I think that is everyone. Um, um, we went on for much longer than anticipated there in that briefing. Um, but I would just want to say very much thank you to Morris and to Michael. Um, I, I, I've said it at other um, evidence <coughs> gathering sessions that we really do need to have a balanced approach as members when we're looking at, at this bill. And that includes um, it, actually hearing evidence from everyone who's involved in anything to do with this bill. So, look, thank you guys for um, coming to us and for answering all the questions so in-depthly as well. You're very welcome. Um, uh, listen, very happy to follow up and uh, wish you the very best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Bye-bye. And, and from myself as well. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, members, um, we're going to then move on to agenda item seven. I know um, certainly... Uh, sorry, could I just before... Sorry, we, before we move on, sorry. Yeah, maybe just uh, on that very last point, um, very last two lines uh, within the presentation, um, could we maybe ask the bill team to have a look at that phrasing there and what, it might, what the implications might be? What, you know. Absolutely, yes, okay. yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Absolutely, Robin. Okay, members, I'm going to move on because I'm quite conscious that our agenda, item 7, um, our, our witnesses have been waiting almost an hour to come in because that did run a, a little bit over. And um, you don't understand, members, the pressures that puts me under then as chair to try and get this meeting finished in time when we have two departmental briefings as well to come ahead. And I certainly want to give Omniplex their opportunity. So if I could ask members to go to agenda item 7 where we have Omniplex Cinemas briefing on the licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill. Um, members, you'll find this item at page 38 of your meeting pack. Um, can I offer uh, then a warm welcome to uh, Paul Anderson, who's Managing Director for Omniplex, and Carol King, the Business Development Manager. Um, I think, is it yourself, Paul? Um, you're both very welcome, but I ask you, Paul, if you want to begin your briefing, and you have up to a maximum of 10 minutes to, to brief us. Can you hear me now? I can indeed, yes, Paul. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the committee for allowing us uh, to speak today um, and uh, and put our views forward in relation to this amendment bill. Um, uh, where to start? I, I think to begin with, you know, who is Omniplex? Uh, you know, some of you may be familiar in Northern Ireland of Omniplex cinemas. Uh, we are, and this isn't to kind of pat us on the back, but we are the largest cinema operator on the island of Ireland. Uh, we operate 33 cinemas uh, on the island of Ireland, 15 cinemas in Northern Ireland, 18 cinemas in Southern Ireland. Uh, we would sit on a lot of the boards of international committees such as NATO, the National Cinema uh, Owners, uh, National Association of Theatre Owners in, in the US uh, on their international committee board and uh, UNIQUE, uh, which is the European Union of Cinemas. Uh, so we'd have a fairly broad knowledge of the markets um, in relation to cinema, uh, what's out there, what's changed. Oh, Paul, you seem to have frozen on us. <laughs> um, okay. Carol, do you want to do a little bit of a brief while we wait on Paul getting maybe back in? Yes, I, I can do it. Yeah, go can ahead. You hear me? Yeah, yeah, can Carol. Yes. Um, well, just as, as you know, Paul is saying is that we are globally, we're uh, very much um, in, involved in the, in, the, in the cinema side of things. Um, Omniplex 2 is very much about community, which obviously Department of Communities, you know, ties in with yourselves. We're very much looking at 
you know, if you look at all where we have the cinemas within um, Northern Ireland and Ireland, you know, it's all community based and um, not just high, high, high town kind of things. There we go. Paul, back in again. If Paul, you want <laughs> to Paul pick up again. Us. Go ahead, Paul. The, 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 yeah, the, the benefits of technology are probably with that. Um, the, yeah, so where was I? Yeah, so we, we have fairly broad uh, knowledge of, of cinema and, um, and what's happening in different markets. And just a summary, you know, that's just a summary of who we are and, and, and I suppose our, our knowledge of, of, the, of the direction of cinema. Uh, we're seeing a massive trend uh, towards cinema being more of a luxury experience. And uh, definitely in the UK, uh, it is taking that direction. Uh, a chain called Everyman Cinemas is really leading uh, that element. Um, part of that offering, a large part of that offering, is food and beverage. Um, and uh, key to obviously the beverage element is having a license uh, to uh, to operate uh, and sell alcohol uh, on the premises. Uh, that would, you know, not having a license, Everyman uh, would not be able to function. Um, you know that that is key to their business model, um, and and they're very successful. And the trend is going towards that direction. Uh, we actually have a alcohol license in one of our locations in Dublin in Rat Mines, uh, which is a nine-screen cinema. Um, and uh, in in the south of Ireland, uh, we are able to achieve a license uh, through a theatre license. So we apply for a music and entertainment license, and on the back of that. Um, we are able to achieve a, a theatre licence, which is normal standard, and uh, a lot of other cinema operators in the south of Ireland have done that. Uh, to date, we've had no issue uh, of note uh, with uh, our licence in Rat Mines. Uh, we've had it for the last two or three years. Uh, we have a kind of a bar area, um, and it's quite casual. You, you know, people may have a drink before or after a film. Uh, and uh, or they may bring a glass of wine into uh, the, the theatre itself. Um, uh, a, a lot of our opera guests uh, would come in and avail of that, and they they love the offering. Um, so and, and in the mainland uh, UK, in in England, Wales, Scotland, uh, a similar uh, uh, way of applying for a, a license is sorry is the same as Southern Ireland that you can apply for a license through a theatre license or the equivalent of. So uh, England, uh, Wales, um, Scotland and uh, Republic of Ireland, uh, cinemas all have the ability to apply for a license uh, through a live entertainment license or um, a, a um, theatre license. Uh, so where does that leave us in relation to Northern Ireland? You, you know, we're, we're a big operator in Northern Ireland. We believe in the Northern Irish uh, sector for leisure and entertainment. Uh, we've made massive investments in Northern Ireland. And uh, in order for us to evolve uh, and for the, the, the offering to grow, we see uh, the need for our, uh, an ability for us to apply for a license. Uh, that doesn't say that every, every single cinema that we operate uh, in Northern Ireland is going to get a cinema license, or sorry, an alcohol license. Uh, it, it's not. You, you know, it, it would be a select number of locations that we may consider applying for. Um, and that's really wh wh where, why we're uh, kind of presenting to, um, uh, to the committee and, and putting our case forward that we see that for, for the future development of cinema uh, and in order for the luxury element, uh, which is definitely the trend, uh, Northern Ireland, uh, we don't want Northern Ireland to be left behind and we don't want to be 
at, at a, a lesser competitive advantage uh, to other um, uh, to other um, areas such as uh, Scotland, Wales, England, or Republic of Ireland. Okay, Paul, look, thank you for that, and uh, thank you for Carol to having to, to sub there for a little while as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm very familiar with your cinemas, and I have, I have, as I was last week, also with Michael with the movie house, and I, yeah. I, I know that you will have listened to the briefing there, and we'd raised the issue about the, the level of demand. But I suppose this is slightly different to your briefing because, Paul, you have um, experience of where this has already been successful in your, your outlets uh, uh, down in the Republic of Ireland. Um, so do you feel that there is the same is the same demand here up in Northern Ireland um, for that offering? Um, and also um, then just to ask you around how that would work then for licenses for cinemas, um, is it a, a, a specific category or what category will that fall into? And do you know what that would cost cinemas? Because uh, I know it asked last week about uh, the cost of a license and would you see that as being um, cost prohibitive? Um, uh, but if you could just explain that part of it also in a bit more detail. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, like uh, the, the, our current experience in relation to rat mines, uh, you know, volume is, is relatively low. You know, this isn't, um, you know, this isn't a huge um, kind of uh, uh, demand uh, in relation to the general, you know, uh, um, uh, guests that, that come into the premises. But there is a, a cohort that, that definitely like to have a drink, a glass of wine or some beer before or after film. So um, in relation to demand, we see huge demand um, in relation to operas. You know, we are uh, big believers in live streaming of operas, of ballets, uh, you know, um, uh, our, our location in Dundonald. Uh, you know, we've sold out shows uh, for all of our uh, live events that we show in Dundonald. We expanded that out to Bangor. Uh, you know, we we've, uh, have it in Lisburn as well. Uh, and so there's a huge demand in relation to that. You know, people like to uh, sit down and watch a live opera and have a glass of wine. And, you know, in the general scheme, you know, of, of, of guests coming in, uh, to give you just an idea in relation to numbers, about 25% of our audience would be, we'd categorize this kind of family audience. Uh, the, the remainder is roughly split equally between uh, kind of couples attending, and then the other uh, half of that is, um, uh, uh, you know, friends and, and people, you know, attending just with friends and, and whatnot. So near, near, over a third of our business is kind of date night um, element. Uh, you know, vast majority of our business comes in the evening time, you know, Monday to Friday, uh, you know, 90%, 80 to 90% of our business is kind of 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Uh, at the weekends. Uh, it's obviously uh, family orientated, you know, up until maybe 5 p.m. Uh, on Saturdays and Sundays, and then it's uh, evening orientated from kind of 7, uh, 8 p.m. on the weekend. So the huge proportion of our business is related to the evening time and is related to, um, you know, kind of date nights, if you want to call it, um, you know, attending uh, as well as friends. And they, they would like possibly to, not everyone, but there are, I think there will be demand in and, and then liking to have a drink um, of alcohol prior or after uh, cinema or during during the cinema zone. Okay, thanks. Paul, Carol, have you anything you want to add? Yeah, um, just, I mean, as, as Paul said there, um, i probably touch, Paul, if it's okay, yeah, I'll touch on the, on the licensing side of things. 
um, the way the cinemas operate, we're on a cinema license, which we do yearly. We're, we, we, um, we do that with the uh, local councils. We're very good terms with them. And basically, for us, the sort of license we're looking for, we, we aren't looking for um, a, a bar license, we're looking for an entertainment license. And basically, a cinema license is um, covers everything in the entertainment one apart from alcohol side of things. So we would be saying that it would just be any of the premises that wanted to have to um, give the opportunity of selling alcohol would go to the entertainment license. You'd have an entertainment license and those that we didn't have would just be a cinema license. And just to say roughly a cinema license costs between smaller cinemas between £350 to £650 a year. Um, which covers your fire risk assessment, your emergency lightings, et cetera, et cetera. The entertainment license would be, and these are approximate about, um, around about £1,200 a year. And in that you would be talking to the council if you wanted to have alcohol, the days you were looking to do it and the time. That's how I would see that we could link in quite easily um, with this. Okay, thanks Carol for that as well. Um, I have uh, Sinead waiting to come in. Any other members want to ask questions? Can they please um, let me know? Sinead, do you want to go ahead? Bring Sinead in. Um, there we go. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, and thanks to Paul and Carol for, for briefing us this morning. I suppose it's a, you know, we, we had a similar briefing last week. Um, and, you know, I suppose my comments aren't really so much questions, but, um, you know, last week's briefing, I think, really opened open my eyes because you know you know I've thought for a long time that um cinemas are in real danger um in terms of um people's habits viewing habits and we know a lot of um films are going straight to Netflix now they're going straight to Amazon they're going straight to Disney um, and people can watch those from their own homes so I suppose it's a case of of trying to think of ways where we can encourage people to be more social to get out um, and I think one way of doing that is to, to change the way um, cinemas operate. Um, and I think it would be a very, um, a very progressive thing to do. Um, it would certainly, uh, you know, it would certainly appeal to, to myself um, and, and to people my age um, who have grown up going to cinemas um, and who like the experience of going to cinemas. But, you know, the, the accessibility of Netflix and the convenience of, of Netflix and things like that um, do obviously make you, you know, you're thinking, like, what, you know, why would I go to the cinema when I can just, you know, stay in the house and watch something? So I think we do need to fundamentally change the way we, um, we view cinemas or else we're in danger of, of actually losing that part of, um, you know, of, of our, um, our, our entertainment habits. So um, I think, you know, personally myself, I'd be very supportive of, of your calls. Um, and I think it's something that the, this committee should seriously consider in, in our further deliberations of this bill. That is, that's, um, that's great news. Sinead, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. No, Sinead, I, I appreciate that. You know, absolutely. I think you know, cinema in Northern Ireland is, as you as you rightly put it, is in danger and is in danger of being left behind. You know that uh, if if we're not allowed to evolve um, the offering, um, it, it it does potentially put uh, that um, that taking that step forward uh, in in danger. You know, we're uh, cinema runs through our blood. You know, we're uh, you know, we're very obviously we we believe in the cinema experience, uh, but we need to be able to evolve with that and and have different offerings. 
uh, that not everyone is going to you know want, but there are a strong cohort that, that may look to avail of it. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry. No, I think as well. You know, you, you've um, in terms of regional disparity. I mean, not everybody can afford to go to Belfast or can afford to go to Dublin to see maybe a theatre show um, or that like. So the fact that I know um, my own cinema locally, Omniplex and Uri have branched out and have been showing um, some, you know, theatre type offerings. So um, it does open up that new experience to people who maybe, as I say, maybe can't afford to, to go to a theatre show in, in Dublin or Belfast. Um, so it's about offering choice as well. Um, and I think uh, cinema should be supported in, in doing that. Um, can I just say, Sinead, too, you, you, you've tapped on it as well, is that the cinema has evolved so much because it used to be just about films, but now we're um, alternative content, as Paul's touched on it, we have the ballet and the opera. And it's a bit like, you know, you're paying for a ticket to go for an experience and we have people coming in and there's interval, there's live intervals and people are just, you know, not, not everybody, but they would like to avail of a glass of wine, starts or whatever, so that, that it gives them a complete experience of actually thinking that they are in the, in the uh, theatre side of things. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys, that's all for me. Okay, thanks Sinead. Um, just before I bring Mark in, I don't know if, if um, Paul or Carl you know the answer to this question, I didn't ask it of Michael last week either. Um, did yeah. our cinemas ever have um, a license to sell alcohol at any stage. I know that I'm just asking this because mm -hmm. the, one of my staff members yesterday was telling me that whenever her and her husband were going together, they used to go to the, the Grove um, Theatre mm -hmm. on the Shore Road. And she said the only reason why they went there was because they could have a, a, a drink in the interval and things like that. So I'm just asking, was, was there ever... Um, do you remember? I'm not saying do you remember, Carl, because you're you're the same age as me. So no, we wouldn't Thank possibly you remember. Thank you very much for that. Follow <laughs> <laughs> UK maybe. Um, to to my knowledge, um, no. But um, there, you know, there are different licenses where people can, you know, theatres are, are are under different side of things about how they come in. But to my knowledge, no. Um, there wouldn't be and I think it's the, the evolution again of the cinemas and one of our biggest thing is the fact that we are not listed in the list uh, and I think that's why we've been overlooked you know admitted more than anything because people haven't realized that you know originally it was just cinema, it was just watching the film I mean now we are offering so much you know for the family and for couples and for that that um, this is where we need to bring it it hasn't been done before but this is this is why why we're bringing it to you. Okay, thank you, Carol. I'm going to yeah. move on. I'm oh, going to move. QFT. Sorry, QFT. Yeah, have yeah. But they're different QFT. because they're a place of education. Um, I'm going to move on to Mark before I get myself into any more trouble. Um, so <laughs> I bring in Mark Durkin, please, Mark. There you are, Hello, Mark. Uh, uh, thanks, Chair. Hello, Paul. Hello, Carl. It's nice to see you, you again even though you can't see me. Uh, just to, to say, I suppose, to be sympathetic enough to, to, to what you're coming uh, forward with, you know, the, the suggestions, but, but I'd like to know, I suppose, what, if any, sort of restrictions to operate would you consider reasonable? For example, if alcohol could only be sold after a certain time of day, or would you like any adult to be able to go into the cinema and buy alcohol, or would they have to be seeing a film? Yeah, well, yeah uh, in relation to restrictions on timing, um, yeah, I, I think 
uh, we're open to suggestions. I, I do think it becomes, um, uh, you know, confusing as well to the public. Um, you know, if they are entering a building uh, where we are selling alcohol and it's different to uh, whatever the social you know, norms are in relation to, uh, you know, other pubs or, or licensed premises, uh, what, what their trading hours are. But we, we can work around that. Um, I don't think there's going to be huge uh, volume or huge people looking for uh, alcohol early in the day uh, time, i.e., you know, kind of uh, our matinee shows, you know, 12, 2 p.m. shows. But, uh, you know, if there is demand, it would most likely be in the evening time. Uh, I would caveat that with, uh, you know, we are expanding offering, you know, offerings in relation to conferences as well. Uh, and kind of business uh, conferences who uh, may you know li like to have an offering of, of some alcoholic beverages, um, and that may vary at the daytime, you know, during the day as well. But I don't see huge demand for it, you know, in, in, in the in the daytime. If that answers your question, Mark. Super. And as you know, we had a representative from Movie House last week, and, and we did yeah. hear after I'd asked, I have to say, about instances occasionally of patrons sneaking alcohol in. I think yeah. 50 Shades of Grey was mentioned this one particularly bad period. Yeah, yeah. Well, had, uh, had Sex in the City is uh, imprinted in my brain <laughs> for that. Uh, we were clearing uh, a few aisles of rows of seats and there was a few empty bottles of wine underneath the chairs. But you know, generally speaking, we, you know, we don't have any you know, issues that I'm aware of. Um, and that haven't they haven't been reported to me anyway in relation to people sneaking in alcohol. It, it can happen. You know, we uh, we serve you know over you know nearly six million people annually uh, pre-COVID <laughs> uh, annually. Uh, so we, you know we put a lot of volume through our, our sites, uh, and you know you're obviously going to get some exceptions. You know, with when you're when you're dealing with the public, but the vast vast majority we, we have had no issues. Mm -hmm. And in, in relation to Rat Mines as well, where we do have a license, we've had zero, uh, zero instances of, of any problems with alcohol. Um, and it's all, you know, cinema is an extremely controlled environment as well. You know, once you pass our ticket check, you're now in a very controlled environment. And, you know, and uh, we have obviously good experience in relation to age ratings and uh, allowing people, um, you know, uh, sorry, managing, you know, age ratings of films as well. So, yeah. Super, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. Okay, Paul. Thank, thanks, Mark. Um, I, just before you, you uh, I, no other members asked to come in. I just want to, because I'd asked Michael the same question last week when he was in from Movie House um, about COVID, and you'd mentioned a few. I, I know Paul and Money are answers there. We're, we're looking at, we're not looking at what happened last year whenever we're talking about things. We're looking at now two years ago. Um, just the impact of COVID that has had on on the cinema industry. Um, if, just if you want to make any uh, brief comment on that before before we finish up. Yeah, you know where do I where do I start? <laughs> it's uh, said brief comment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, you know it, it, it's um, we had a record year in 2019, coming into a very strong uh, January and February, and business has just fallen off a cliff. Uh, you, you know, I, I ran some numbers in relation to April to December of last year versus April to December of 2019, and our revenue is down 92% year on year. You know, so we, we, we've been closed for 26 weeks of last year. And so it's been absolutely devastating, uh, devastating to our business, devastating to our employees. 
um, uh, and uh, you know the opening and closing of our businesses. We put a huge amount of time, effort, financial, you know, um, uh, financially as well into reopening uh, our business. It was uh, heartbreaking to close it down again for a second time, uh, then reopen, then close it down. Uh, you know, a financial toll as well as a mental toll. You know, in that has been has been devastating. Uh, and to our employees, you know, our employees have been fantastic during this process, uh, and um, they're the they're the guys who really our managers and our supervisors and our general staff have, have really been exceptional. You know, in adapting and, and you know retraining our staff uh, to working with COVID. It's just incre- it was incredibly disappointing to the opening and closing. Recently, you know, and we will be writing to the respective ministers. We've been extremely disappointed that uh, leisure and entertainment have been excluded from uh, the large um, tourism and hospitality support scheme, which was announced um, by the Department of Economy. Uh, it only includes 260 businesses uh, within the tourism and hospitality business uh, sector, and it, it does not include leisure and entertainment. I, I can't understand why we weren't included. Uh, you know that funding would have been. Uh, crucial to us, uh, and we are writing to the respective ministers to try and uh, reconsider this uh, and include us. Uh, you know, our, uh, you know, some of our large premises, and um, you know, all of these schemes are worked off in uh, net annual value in relation to rates. Uh, are one of our largest premises, an NAV of three hundred and thirty thousand, and you know, among other, you know, uh, eleven of our fifteen premises in Northern Ireland are above. The 50,000 NAV. Uh, so we operate very large premises with large NAV, NAVs and naturally have very large outgoings just to maintain those premises, even if they're closed. Uh, so, so we see it crucial to get some sort of funding that's scaled and relevant to the size of our premises and other, lar- other large uh, leisure and entertainment operators. Uh, so we're incredibly disheartened and disappointed that, that, that leisure and entertainment weren't included, and, and hopefully we can see. Uh, see that amended, uh, you know, in, in the coming weeks. Well, I suppose, I mean, that, that, uh, just on that point, and I know that we've gone straight away from the bill here greatly, um, that's something maybe this committee can also ask that question um, uh, of the Department of Co- Economy, just to say that, um, around that grant. Um, Paula, could, yeah, go ahead, can Karen. I just say, just a quick one, just to, just to ask, ask you on that point, is just if we could have some clarity for the larger businesses here, because... We seem to have been missed out from the start of this terrible pan, 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 pandemic back in March. That you know, cinemas and the larger leisure homes have been just you know gripped together with hospitality. We went from department economy, we then went to um, department communities, then we went back to department of, of economy, and we're really feeling that we're being left out, and we really, really do need this help. And if any, if you can write and just get some clarity and any assistance would be much appreciated to not just the cinemas, but to all large um, businesses, large leisure and entertainment business. Okay, no, we certainly can do that, Carl. I'd see, Mark, you have your hand up again. Did you want in again? Mark Durkin. Mark, go ahead. Yes, Chair, I will, will you beat me to it in terms of us writing as a committee, I suppose, in, in support of, of the ask here or, or well, a, a similar ask in terms of support, not just for cinemas, but, but for a wider kind of yep. entertainment uh, venues as well. But I was just going to ask, Paul, had there been much of a difference or disparity in terms of 
government support in the, no the south and the north? Uh, yeah, w without trying to get too contentious, there, there has been differences, um, uh, you know, and there's even differences between, you know, Northern Ireland and England, you know, and Wales, uh, you know, in relation to support. You know, one you know, there's, there's two main elements of support that we've received. One is in relation to furlough, uh, the furlough scheme. And the furlough scheme is absolutely excellent, but it doesn't support it doesn't support the company. It supports yeah. our employees, uh, and we want to support our employees. So just to be clear on that, that the furlough scheme is an excellent, excellent scheme when we're closed, but it doesn't support the company. The company still has outgoings, still has service charges to pay, still has rents to pay, still has well, uh, electricity bills to pay. Your employee, employer contributions to pay in terms of national Exactly, yeah, and, and pension contributions as well. So, yeah, and the, the, other, the other scheme was the rates holiday. Now, you know, the rates is effectively a tax, you know, on related to an NAV, a notional rent. And um, so that that's not really a support either. That that was really for granted that, you know, in normal circumstances, we have no issue paying rates that are fair. And um, but, you know, we, we were asked and forced by government to close our doors. You know, we, we, we have no ability to get revenue in the front door. So how could that same government ask us to pay rates, you know? So we, we've, really, we've really done what we've been asked to do. We close our door, we've been closed for 26 weeks, you know, to date uh, and counting. And, you know, we're just looking for some support from government because we feel, uh, and from the executive, we feel uh, very hard done by, you know, in relation to this, we see very little forthcoming in relation to uh, just general direct financial support and, this scheme that was developed for the tourism and hospitality would go a huge way to ensuring that uh, the businesses that are there, large businesses, will be secure and be able to open uh, when, when the time comes. And we have had uh, very good direct support in ROI, and it's based off 5% uh, of revenue and or um, you know business rates and so on and so forth. I, I don't I, I don't know the exact details offhand, but there are direct supports uh, related to. Uh, business in ROI, but there aren't as generous, say, furlough schemes, you know, so it's kind of swings and roundabouts, you know, as well. Um, and, and there's a lot of differences and nuances uh, to the schemes, but there's no um, kind of substantial direct support scheme in NI, uh, which is disappointing. Okay, cheers, folks. Okay. okay. Thanks, Thank can I, um, there's no other member has requested to ask anything, and so I, the committee will follow up on those, the, the final issues that you brought up there as well. Can I say thank you both to yourself, Paul and Carl, um, for joining us today and um, for uh, uh, answering all, all of our questions in, in detail, so thank you. Okay, thank you, Paul, and thank, thank you. you. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thanks, bye. Bye-bye. Okay, members, just before I move on, um, uh, I just want to let you know that the clerk, uh, Janice, had a discussion with the bill team in the department and they would like to provide some written briefings as we continue to take our evidence sessions on the bill. This is to provide clarification or further information on key issues raised in the evidence sessions in order to assist the process when we get to our deliberation stage. Um, the committee team will alert the bill team in the department as to any issues arising where additional information or clarification would be useful. So it's just it's it's just that that will be going on in the background. It's just to make members aware and just to get their agreement on that, if that's okay. Yeah. 
okay great all agree like thank you members i am going to have to stop for a very short comfort break um i know we have two big briefings of the department and we have an hour left now so we'll have but i'll be as quick as possible so just take your ease for a few moments committee room 29 This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 
29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Committee Room 29. Okay, members, we're going to move on then to agenda item 8, which is a departmental briefing on the job start scheme. Members, you'll find um, the departmental response at page 41 and a letter from the Minister on additional briefing paper received yesterday in your tabled papers. Um, can I welcome to the meeting Deidre Ward. Deidre, I know you've been hanging around for a very long time uh, as well, listening in. Um, Deidre, can I ask you to um, go ahead and do your briefing as brief as possible as well? Mm -hmm. Be allow time for some yeah. questions. Thanks, Deidre. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to brief committee. So, as you'll be aware, COVID has had an unprecedented impact on the local economy and on the labour market. So, we currently have uh, approximately 60,000 people claiming unemployment benefits, um, those searching for work under Universal Credit and Job Seekers Alliance. And we anticipate that to rise to 93,000 in May. Uh, this year, after the COVID uh, job retention scheme ends. There's also comparable numbers in Northern Ireland claiming support for the self-employed income support scheme, with 70,000 claims, and, and there are 68,000 currently on furlough. The Job Start scheme was designed to respond to the needs of young people and those who are work-ready, and that's ready who to be re-employed but need help negotiating the process of finding work. When I spoke to you in December, we were geared up to launch the Job Start scheme on the 14th of December. The online application process for employers was set up and ready to open. Staff were in place to assess the applications as they were submitted. Work coaches were in place to work with young people to determine which job opportunities they should apply for. And my team has continued since then to refine the processes for Job Start while we await a date to launch. Discussions have taken place with colleagues in the Department for Economy about using JobStart as a pathway into an apprenticeship or uh, into other training initiatives. The departmental bid to DOF as part of the Budget 21-22 exercise was for $24.7 million to support the delivery of new and expanded labour market interventions um, this year. When the draft budget was shared, it became apparent that the settlement provided for the department had no COVID allocation to address the need for labour market interventions to support people into employment. And this includes JobStart, our expanded work experience schemes, our increased flexible support funding, and our work-ready employability service. As a result, Minister was advised to pause the launch of these interventions. The Minister has engaged with the Finance Department and other executive colleagues 
and is committed to getting job scheme up and running as soon as possible. The department reallocated internal funding to meet the costs of launching Job Start Scheme, but to date no funding has been surrendered to DOF. If funding can be confirmed for 21-22, we can open the scheme for applications for, for, from employers. It takes approximately three to four weeks to process an application for funding um, to ensure the checks have been completed, for example, on the financial viability of an employer. When an employer has been successful, a funding agreement will be shared with them. This is returned having been signed off with employer along with the specific details of the jobs they have available. Then recruitment for the uh, opportunities can start. Work coaches can talk to young people about what jobs are available and the employer can start to receive applications. It's envisioned that this process would take around six weeks. Overall, there's a lead time in around nine to 10 weeks before a young person is actually placed on, in an opportunity from the scheme launches. But as we said, we're unable to launch um, at this stage because we have no funding from the 1st of April next year. I would say as well that we're, we're, we're frustrated that we can't launch these labour market schemes because we believe these are the right kinds of schemes to help young people the minister is equally frustrated and committed in, into trying to seek budget clarity to help us move forward. But I'm happy to take any questions um, from committee members. Okay, look, thank you, Deidre. And um, you will know yourself because I'm sure you've listened into this committee and, and heard just how frustrated the committee is also um, that this, this scheme did not start. Um, on the, the time frame that had first been anticipated and indeed we know that uh, the, the similar scheme, I know it's not exactly the same, but a similar scheme started by, uh, over in mainland UK in the beginning of September. So that's five months of loss of jobs for many of those young people and for many of those employers as well because not only have we been, uh, I know certainly in my office about this, I've been contacted by employers as well who were ready to start this scheme uh, and find that you know that had, this has been most unfair. So we know that we got the money through Barnet Consequentials, and if I am right, then that money had to be bid for um, for yeah. this. Um, at the time yeah. when that money was being, uh, the bid was being put in, uh, it, you know, the future of this scheme was it looked at at that time? When did this? When did the issue around the the finance going into the following financial year? When did this issue arise? Um, Deirdre, can you tell us that? Yeah. So we, we, we built um, um, business cases for all of the labour market interventions that we were doing and we submitted those as is the process through um, our department and then into the GOF. Those business cases were uh, all approved and we had the in-year money to, to launch the schemes. Um, but these are, uh, Job Start in particular gives young people opportunities for six months to nine months. So. To start a, a scheme when we're not clear that we have the money from the 1st of April would be you know, unfair, I think, on the young person who might only get a few months of a scheme and or unfair on the employer um, who's not getting uh, the full opportunity to see what the, the young person can do. So um, we, we only became aware when we, we um, uh, understood that the, the draft budget just around Christmas time didn't have allocations in for next year, but at that point, that was only a first version of the budget. It hadn't been agreed. And so really it was when we saw the draft budget published that we realized 
there is absolutely no allocation for labour market interventions um, um, from the 1st of April onwards, so we're unable to, to launch. Um, okay, and uh, thank you for that explanation, and I absolutely understand that uh, explanation. Um, can you then maybe enlighten us as to why it took so long um, for the creation of something that was going to be more best poked in Northern Ireland, why it took so long to create that? Um, and also, you'd said there about uh, that at this stage, no funding has been surrendered. Um, how confident are you, um, Deidre, or that you know of? How confident are we that that money will not have to be surrendered? We have the money in year to, to do labour market interventions. What we don't have is the, the money beyond the first uh, the 31st of March. We could still launch Jobstart this financial year if we knew that money would be available in the next financial year to run it. So we're confident that we could launch, for example, Jobstart this financial year if we had an understanding about next year's financial position. In terms of uh, the time taken to design and um, develop Jobstart here, um, DWP had Kickstart launched earlier, but even they have had small numbers of young people actually placed into schemes at this point, um, partly to do with the restrictions that exist um, everywhere. Um, and so some of the sectors that might wish to avail of Jobstart, not all, but some, We've had difficulty placing young people with the social distancing, the need for safety of young people, the need to train young people to take up the job. So uptake has been slower than DWP anticipated in the first instance due to the, the necessary uh, requirements to meet health guidance uh, at this point. Okay, Rick Deirdre, thank you for that. I'm going to open up to members if they have any questions. Yes, I've got Andy, then I've got Kelly, and then I've got Mark. And just remind members if you can be to, uh, to the direct at the point and also Deirdre. Go ahead, Andy. Deirdre, um, I know you confirmed this previously. Can, can you just remind the committee how much is currently being held to, for uh, job start in this financial year? Um. Well, uh, we have the staffing in place. We wouldn't anticipate um, having to subsidise employers in this financial year on the basis that I described there's a bit of a lag time from us processing an employer's application to the young person starting on the job. We want to ensure that when the young person starts, that's a real job and a real opportunity and that there's been no displacement um, by an employer either furloughing or making others redundant in order to take a young person in. So there's a bit of process around checks and balances before the young person would actually start the opportunity and then payments would be made to employers. So we wouldn't anticipate, bear in mind that lag time that we're nearly now into February, that we would have to make payments to employers in this financial year, but we could still take those applications and process them to be ready to have young people start uh, in April. Okay, so, so let me phrase that slightly differently. Has there been any cost incurred for job start in this financial year? I think you previously indicated when you were at the yeah. committee before about 0.8 million, if I was right. Was... Yeah, Is... so we have costs incurred this year because we have had to um, have staff develop the scheme. We've had to train staff to understand how to process uh, applications from employers. 
we've had to develop guidance for the work coaches on the front line so that they understand what processes are and we've had to set up processes in terms of respective payment with employers we've also done a lot of staff engagement uh, with two organizations and two employers and two employers groups and so that has all been done by staff so yes there have been staff costs incurred in this financial year do you have a figure on that i mean um, it, yeah, it's 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 under a million, I, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. What I will do is write to you um, after after this and give you the exact number. Okay, and and can you confirm then? Uh, I think you'd mentioned twenty in the round, circa twenty four million for uh, workforce yes. uh, intervention. Yes. How much of that is required yeah. for job start? Uh, Seventeen point seven million. Seventeen point seven and. I don't know if you'll have this information or, or you can obtain it. Uh, if we had have rolled over Kickstart as was uh, implemented by DWP, um, what, what would the cost of that be? Uh, and I appreciate obviously the Minister's built in additional safeguards, but do you know? Um, no, because Jobstart is, is a, a more um, fulsome theme than Kickstart. As we discussed at the committee hearing in December, we were allowing nine months of um, training uh, for young people who came from uh, a care background, the youth justice system, or had disabilities. So that isn't available in the Kickstart scheme. So uh, 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 Jobstart is probably uh, slightly more expensive than Kickstart would be, but um, uh, uh, in, in direct terms, but you're not quite comparing uh, apples and apples. Uh, our scheme is more robust. No, I appreciate that. I'm not being flippant here, but we, at the moment we have no yeah. start. That is the reality yeah. of, of where we are. Yeah. We don't have any scheme yeah. uh, uh, moving yeah. on. And as the chair has pointed out, um, you know, I, I too am being contact, contacted by many people who are saying in other regions of the UK they can avail of a similar scheme, but in Northern Ireland, yet again, we cannot yeah. avail of any scheme. And that is not yeah. criticism of your, yourself. It's just the echo, the huge frustrations there are yeah. out there on the ground. Yeah. I think this needs to be resolved. Yeah. Thank you, Deidre. I, I share your frustration. We, we believe this is a, a really good scheme to give young people an opportunity in an absolutely devastating economic downturn to move forward, to acquire the skills they need to access the labour market. So, um, yes, there were foreign consequentials that came across and, and we're, as, we're as frustrated as anyone that we can't launch this scheme because we think, we believe firmly, as does the Minister, that this is the right thing to do. Sorry, sorry just very quickly, Deidre, are, are you in a position to confirm what the Barnet was? I think you pre uh, confirmed that previously. It was about 17 million, was it? Uh, no, it was, it was uh, in total for labour market interventions, uh, it, it was more like um, 35 million. And what we were bidding for was 24. But I'll get. Let me confirm those figures for you very exactly uh, to be sure. To be sure. So of of Barnet consequentials, you, you you believe there's in the round. We were asking for less than, than than came across. Yes. So DOF is, is allocated not nothing uh, of the Barnet consequentials. Nothing. And I do appreciate they're unhypothecated, but not one penny yes. has been allocated. No, not one. Yeah. Um, I don't think I need to say anything in respect. I think it's, it speaks for itself. Thanks, Chair. Okay, Andy, thank you. I'm going to move to Kelly and again remind Kelly also to be to the point and, and as brief, please. Thank you, Chair. Um, 
Deirdre, thank you very much. And I appreciate you're here on behalf of the department. So I, I'm going to ask some quick um, uh, questions that may be quite pointed, but um, this is not personal. You mentioned at the start 93,000 people are expected to be unemployed in May. What percentage of that amount are these 16 to 24-year-olds? Uh, I'm not sure off the top of my head, Kelly, but I can tell you that uh, youth unemployment currently is running at 11.7%, where pre-COVID it was at 2.5%. So that's already where youth unemployment has gotten to. So I would expect that that 11% may, may rise. Yeah, I'm and just thinking... Yeah, we have a cohort that is of young people, 20, of 24 and younger, yeah. I'm just thinking that there's a cohort of young people who really haven't had any opportunities to complete their education at this stage, um, who will be coming out of education in May and June time. Um, are they included in your thoughts at this stage? Or, you know, that 93,000, or is that separate? No, that would be separate, because uh, normally they're leaving education in that sort of June time frame. Uh, um, and so they're they're not in that modelling for for the ninety three thousand is my assumption. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm a little bit confused, Deirdre, and um, I, I I believe that the committee has been misled and MLAs have been misled. We were told, as you know, that the we were ready to go on the fourteenth of December. Um, you're saying to us that the scheme, disappointingly, absolutely, we're as frustrated as you are, cannot go ahead now because we don't know what the funding situation will be from the new financial year in the first of April, but. Surely that was known on the 14th of December. Um, we were told that the reason why the scheme didn't go forward on the 14th of December because was because of lockdown um, and that there was no point in taking it forward at that stage because employers and young people wouldn't be able to um, avail of the opportunities because of lockdown. I'm, I'm sort of being led to understand now that that's not the case, that it's more to do with the money. Um, I appreciate that there was a bid made for the Barnet Consequentials and the department wasn't successful in that. It was used for many other purposes. Um, but my concern is, for instance, the Work Ready Employment Service has been brought to my attention that people bid or put it forward their tender applications in November and they still haven't heard anything. So even if we wanted to flick a switch and make this um, you know, scheme available, those tenders haven't been evaluated and no awards have been made. Um, I'm also, I'll, I'll ask this question and this will be my final one. I am a disability advocate and I am absolutely furious that I have a concern that people with disabilities and the programmes that could have provided them with support are going to be left high and dry from the 1st of April because the presumption was that Job Start would have included those young people. Um, it's not going to now. What's the plan B? Um, we know that the Shared Prosperity Fund is up in the air and, and it's not going to be able to be used in the same way that ESF was before. Are we looking at a year's worth of people with disabilities um, not being able to access um, employment opportunities because this scheme and other schemes are not there? Um, on, the dis on the disability um, uh, uh, piece, we, we still have our existing provision and we still are moving forward with that. So we still continue to offer access to work and um, condition management programme and work and so those those pieces are um, still moving forward and still being delivered and those are specific schemes to help people with health conditions and disabilities. Those Can I just... Yeah, sorry, can I just ask you on that one? We're coming very close to the end of the financial year. The suppliers for those schemes, are they in place? Have they been given grants and contracts for the coming year? 
those those schemes are contractually uh, uh, run across a number of years, and those schemes are still in place and will be in place as we move to uh, into the next financial year. Those are within the baseline allocation that we've been given. Uh, what I would say to you is, and, and I'm happy to come back and brief further in this committee. Those schemes are up for uh, contractual. Uh, finish in the middle of next financial year. And so we have been working to understand what comes after those schemes in support of those with disabilities uh, and trying to think that through. Um, uh, and so those schemes will run until they're contractually uh, finished. And then we will look to understand what is the new provision that comes after that that is specific to disability. Um, so that that would be our under that would be what we would be doing in the disability space. In relation to your early question about um, uh, December, we had outlined business cases for JobStart and all of the other pieces of labour market intervention that we talked about, and those went through DOF and uh, um, uh, uh, very late on in November, early December, and they were all approved. So we didn't have an indication that the bids wouldn't be met. And we had our in-year money to move forward and launch all of these uh, um, uh, uh, labour market interventions. So I have to say we were we were really shocked when we realised those bids wouldn't be met because that was not our understanding, having gained approval for the business cases from DOF. But on just one clarification then, at this stage we're saying that there's a question mark over the money from the 1st of April. Um, I understand... If, if it so work, just work back with me so on the 14th of December if the scheme had have opened and it takes nine to ten weeks for the process to complete allow those young people mm -hmm. to be able to now given the fact that we didn't have a scheme that was open for businesses to actually you know apply at that stage and it would take them three or four weeks and then nine or ten weeks to get their recruitment done and get those young people we were always looking at the first of April um, so I'm just wondering um, just on that timeline then if we didn't if we weren't sure that the money was going to be there from the first of April because the you know the budget bids weren't there, could this scheme ever have begun in this year? Well, no, it could have begun. It, it was uh, we weren't thinking that it would be April before people would um, start. Young people would start on the scheme. Our feeling was that if uh, uh, if we got our processing speeds up and became more experienced in processing the applications from employers, that we might have young people all, uh, feet on the ground, so to speak. Uh, in towards the end of February and into March. So it wasn't our uh, expectation that it would take to April to have young people actually start in opportunities. Um, that we All along, we've understood that there's a real need to help young people to access the labour market. We were always going to, to go to as fast as we could to get young people into these opportunities. Because we're clear about the timescales of more young people leaving education in June of this year. We're clear that anyone who was made redundant in March of last year is, is about to hit 12 months unemployment in March of this year, putting them into the long-term unemployed category. So we, we understand the, the timing of interventions being crucial as well. Yeah, I'm just very concerned that, you know, we... The rest of the UK with Kickstart, as as Andy has said, you know, 
during the this is horrendous this is not of anybody's making the pandemic is is the fault you know COVID is there and, and we're stuck in this situation but the rest of the UK moved forward we were told that job start would be a wonderfully more inclusive scheme and it sounded fantastic but as Andy has said it doesn't matter if it, if it sounds fantastic if it's not on the ground um, to be able to deliver um, I'm just very concerned that there are other aspects of this scheme like the work ready employment service where the tenders haven't even been sorted out yet. Those suppliers are sitting going, are we ever going to get an answer on this? You know, we applied months ago. Um, things have changed, times have moved on. I just wonder how viable those those quotes were included in their tenders now. But um, it would be very good, Deirdre, and I know this is not all on your head. It's, it's a myriad of circumstances, but we're kept up to date as soon as possible. Any changes that come yeah. forward? Um, because... Yeah. I'm terrified of this. I could see our 16 to 24 year old um, and we have a number of who are leaving school, leaving universities because they're so um, unmotivated now because of this whole pandemic. Um, and, and we're faced with years worth of trying to put this back together again. But any updates would be wonderful. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Deirdre. OK, thank thank you. thanks, Kelly. Um, then I'm going to move on to Mark Durkin and again remind Mark if he can um, be uh, bring his, his questions to a point. I will be brief enough, Chair, because most of it's uh, been covered and I welcome dearly and I know dearly it's, it's never easy to be the, the bearer of bad news. And I suppose, like Andy referred to this as no start, I think false start uh, might be a better term. And I know a couple of my colleagues have mentioned this already, but I just want for full clarity. We were told before Christmas by the previous Minister that the delay to job starts launch was due to the fortnight circuit breaker. Was that fully the case, or was there any indication at that point that the necessary allocation wouldn't make it under the budget? No, we were not aware that there was uh, that the that the, 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 the the necessary allocation from the first of April wouldn't be there. The circuit breaker decision. Um, one of the biggest uh, interests from employers was. Um, some of the bigger retail sectors who have been extraordinarily busy over the, the COVID period and, uh, uh, and, and from other employers who were keen to take young people in. But the circuit breaker was going to make that difficult in relation to still ob observing um, uh, health guidance while getting young people trained to deliver in a new job. So it was the right thing to do. DWP would say as well, that Kickstart has, has, has had a slower start than they would have liked in relation to the, the restrictions, making it difficult for employers to bring young people in in the numbers that they would like to, in the opportunities that they want to offer, um, alongside making sure that everyone is safe and, and, and keeping compliant with the guidance. Thanks, David. And then could it just, we just have some more detail on what work had been done up on until this point, I know Andy had, had, had touched on that as well, but like, I mean, was it the case that there were any, or if so, how many employers lined up to employ young people? How many young people were we anticipating would engage in the scheme? And yeah. do you know, yeah. Yeah. how well, have you been informed of this disastrous development? Well, we had engaged with um, like over four or 500 different organizations in order to get people to understand what the labor market interventions might be. So we had been speaking to councils, to employers, um, uh, groups, to several groups, 
and in geographies to try and engage with um, employers. Um, and we had indications from quite a number of employers, including some big employers, that they would be keen to take people into um, job start opportunities. So there had been a lot of groundwork covered to warm up the employer marketplace to the opportunity, um, and also um, a lot of work done with our frontline to help job coaches understand what the offer would be so that uh, conversations could then begin with young people. Um, so yes, you're right. We, we did have considerable interest from businesses um, uh, wanting to take um, uh, young people in the job start opportunities. Um, and now um, we are going to have to do a very comprehensive and robust uh, communications uh, in the opposite direction, which we're very frustrated by, I have to say. No, I'm certainly sympathetic uh, to the fact that yourself and, and your colleagues have put so much work and the lesson it, it seems to have of all uh, been in vain, but the reserve most sympathy and lots of it uh, for those young people whose hopes may have been raised and have now been just cruelly, cruelly dashed. But thank you, Deirdre. Okay, um, thank you, Mark, for that. Alex? Yes, thank you for your presentation. Um, it's very disappointing to hear all this. Um, am I right? Is it 24 million you need to? Sorry, 24 million for all of the labour market interventions, 17.7 for job start, um, so 24.6 for all of them in total. And, and you, the department put in to the finance department yes. for this extra money? Yes. And was yes. it the finance department that turned it down? It's, it's, there's no allocation made for it in, in the draft budget. Yeah, so, but... Um, you put the application forward with the minister to the finance department, um, and it wasn't taken yeah. forward from there, was it? Uh, the way it works, and it's, it's, uh, it's, fi sorry, finance colleagues are, are, are next after me, I, I, I know, but the way it works for us is that we build a business case and we take that through approvals within the department, yeah. and then it goes to the Department of Finance for approvals. Those business cases for all of those separate uh, labour market interventions adding up to the 24.6 million were all approved by the Department of Finance. Okay. Uh, then there was no allocation against those bids in the draft executive budget that is out for consultation. Yeah, but the budget was brought forward by the finance minister, isn't that right? Yeah, wasn't executive it? Budget. Yes. Yeah, everybody's saying yes, and you're saying yes, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So he didn't bring it forward, basically, is what you're saying? Well, I think it's the executive's draft budget, but, uh, uh, yeah, but, but certainly the approvals have been in place for the, for the business cases, yes, by finance. Yeah, so the finance minister hasn't brought it forward. Was there any discussions between the, the minister for communities and the fi finance minister? The minister for communities has had discussions, uh, bilateral discussions uh, with uh, the Minister for Finance and continues to press for the needs um, uh, for budget to cover labour market interventions and is extremely committed to wanting to try to secure the necessary finance for us to launch these schemes and move forward and help people into work. Don't worry, I'm not blaming the Communities Minister, I'm blaming the Finance Minister for not bringing this forward to the Executive to bring it forward. So, um, okay, thank you very much. Okay, look.
Thank you, Deidre, very much. Um, you will have definitely have got an insight into our frustration around all of this. I think it was compounded last week whenever we only heard about the finance issue when it came to question time in the chamber, which you know just added to our, our frustration. So uh, as I say, we're not blaming you in any way, shape or form, and thank you for coming along <coughs> and giving us this briefing. And we're quite conscious, yeah, we do have a departmental briefing on the budget afterwards, um, so there might be some questions asked within that as well. So thank you, Deidre, and uh, we'll be watching this one with interest, as you'd be aware. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, members, I see Kelly's hand has just gone up. I hope I didn't miss her there, or she put it up after, but um, we're away on anyway. <laughs> so we're going to move on quickly then to agenda item nine, which is a departmental briefing on budget 2021-22. Members, you'll find this at page 43 of your pack. And you'll find additional table paper in your table papers. A letter received yesterday from the department regarding January modelling round new bids and additional reduced requirements. Uh, members, I'm really conscious that we have very little time left, and normally anything to do with budget, we spend quite a bit um, going through it. But we will motor on, and as a, again, just ask everybody just to be direct and get to the point. Um, can I then welcome to the meeting um, Gavin Patrick and Cherry Arnold? Um, you are both very welcome. Um, there we go. You're you're both very clear. Um, would would it be would it be maybe better that if we went straight to questioning, or if you wanted to just give us a very one minute brief, if you have anything you want to say beforehand? I'm just very conscious of our time frame today. Um, thank you, Chair and Committee. Um, I suppose just to set out then um, the key points of the budget. Um, the budget was agreed by the Finance Minister, announced by the Finance Minister on the 18th of January. Um, it's now subject to Department of Lead, period of pub public consultation, which runs to the 25th of February. It presents very challenging aspects for the Department in the 21-22 financial year. Um, in terms of key impacts, um, our budget proposed is 824 million of resource. Um, this is only 1 million additional on the 2021 opening position and is effectively 1.5 million less on 2021 as no recurrent funding has been provided for independent advice for work previously carried out by the advice sector and supporting welfare reform change. Our bid for 18 million for baseline funding for pay and inflationary pressures has not been met. A further bid for 149 million for COVID funding has also not been met. Um, this will have significant impacts in terms of welfare delivery. Um, we had plans in place to recruit 900 additional staff to pay working age benefits in light of increased demand for social security. This work is now currently being scaled back and will focus on filling only a very limited number of vacancies. To set this in the context of the current pandemic, the universal credit caseload has increased by over 126% over the past 10 months and is expected to increase further um, as the furlough scheme ends. Also too, as Deirdre mentioned in our, your previous briefing, we've received no funding for our labour market interventions. There will also be significant impacts on the arts and sports sectors. Um, bids again for these sectors have not been met. The same applies too for councils and our supporting people providers. 
There's also two impacts on homeless people as throughout the pandemic we've provided assistance for more emergency accommodation to reduce the numbers living on the street. Again, our bid for homelessness has not been met and these urgent interventions will not be funded and may likely reduce or stop. We also had bids in for New Decade New Approach for £139 million. Only our bid for existing welfare mitigations has been met, which means bids totalling £96 million have not been met. These included bids to deliver new welfare mitigations recommended by the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, a bid to support uh, amending the special rules for terminal illness and removal of the welfare reform to child policy. A number of other bids, including bids for the Irish language and Ulster Scott strategies, disability, gender equality, sexual orientation, anti-poverty strategies have also not been met. We bid for 8.4 million to impact the negative consequences on homelessness and vulnerable households for the for EU exit. Again, this bid has also not been met. The department bid as well too for 3.1 million for housing transformation. Again, this not this bid has also not been met, which will impact on our ability to bring about the housing executives revitalisation programme. To summarise in terms of resource, the department bid for eight, 318 million of resource for baseline requirements, COVID recovery, new decade, new approach, housing transformation and Brexit, and received only 42.8 million for existing mitigations. In terms of capital, the department bid for 329 million of capital and was allocated to 224. Our application is a 10.7 million increase on the, on the capital funding provided for the current financial year. This allocation will allow the department to meet its statutory obligations, such as and disabled adaptions, renovation grants, discretionary support loans, funeral loans and health and safety requirements. In terms of financial transaction capital, the department has secured 38.8 million, and that will support the co-ownership housing scheme in 2021-22. As part of the budget consultation, we are now carrying out we carried out an equality impact assessment, and the draft has been published for public consultation. And this is due to the impacts that our budget will have on our Section seventy five categories. It will impact on people of different ages, particularly young people, um, given the fact that we will have have limitations in terms of the labour market interventions we will be able to have in place. It will also to impact on men and women. It's likely to impact on people with a disability who will move even further from the labour market. It will also impact on people with dependence, as households who are on benefits, such as universal credit, are likely to experience delays in payments. The department's public consultation runs concurrently with the Department of Finance-led public consultation on the executive budget until the 21st of February. To summarise, the impact of the executive's draft budget on the department is very challenging. We have a very strained financial position in the 21-22 financial year. Um, at the minute, we are urgently considering options on how we live within the budget that's being allocated. These options may include not filling vacancies and considering how efficiencies can be realised across the department, across our arm's length bodies, our programmes of work. However, this will be very challenging given over 92% of the department's resource budget is required to meet protected, contractual, 
inescapable and statutory obligations. In developing options to live within their proposed 21-22 budget allocation, consideration will be given to how any adverse impacts can be reduced. However, this will be extremely difficult, given the scale of additional funding the Department requires next financial year. Our Minister continues to lobby for additional funding to support those people who need it most, and the engagement continues with the Department of Finance. Gavin and I are not happy to take any questions. Okay, look, thank you for that. And I'm just going to go straight in. Um, I'll just ask two questions and then I'm going to go straight to members. And I have um, Sinead, Kelly and Mark waiting to, uh, to ask questions. Um, uh, we, we've, we've heard, and you would have heard there, you were sitting in or listening to the, our, our previous brief there to do with the job start scheme and the issue around funding for that. We had a, an issue at the beginning of the meeting, albeit it wasn't funding from this committee, it was funding from other committees, the rules throughout this committee, who haven't heard whether their funding will go on past the 31st of March. And we know that much of this is a lot of this are, it will be executive decisions that are made. Um, do you uh, see, looking at the Department for Communities, um, all of those wonderful, wonderful projects that we have in place, um, are, are we looking seriously now at many of those projects having to end? In, in the absence of funding being available, yes, that is the, the situation that we're, or the funding not being provided, that's the situation we're now in. Um, in terms of labour market interventions, yes, it will impact on our statutory obligation to support people. Um, particularly young people that have been impacted by COVID. You'll have heard Deidre mention young employ unemployment amongst young people at the minute is now sitting at 11.7% um, in that age bracket up to 24. It's also likely to, to impact on disabled people who are now further from the labour market. And we also too, I know Deidre mentioned the 24 million for the labour market for the new programmes we were due to launch. We also had a further bid in for 12 million for a restart in line with the Department of Work and Pensions and work being progressed there, and that was to support long-term unemployment. And without that additional funding, we will be unable to progress these schemes. It's also too going to have negative impacts as well too on um, the Department's Amy spend. We're not going to be able to help people um, move into work and reduce their dependence on benefits. And again, it could lead to potential financial penalties from Treasury. Um, and it does mean that without... Um, a response um, in Northern Ireland, we will be the only region in the islands um, that are un is unable to support people in the middle of the biggest economic crisis we're currently facing. Thank you for that. And just a quick supplementary onto that. Um, we know certainly that the, through the Department of Communities, you're supporting the most vulnerable within our society and people who are in real, absolute real need. Um, are other committees um, having the same um, difficulties around funding as, as, as or other departments, rather, um, as the Department of Communities? Is this even across the board? That if I come in, Mayor Chair, the, all departments were receiving their uh, opening baseline was in line with their opening baseline for, for this current year, 2021. Um, so I would say all departments are facing very difficult decisions like ourselves. I'm not aware at this point of any others that um, are in the position of uh, publishing or going through a, an EQIA exercise. Um, therefore, it would appear that we are maybe um, are impacted further because of those three areas highlighted in that EQIA. Okay, look, 
thank you for that, Gavin, and I'm keen because there's lots of questions to be asked to move on. Um, the other one I would just want to ask you about is the COVID resource spending and the, the, the significant amount of money that came from Her Majesty's Treasury at the end of last year. And we know that the Department of Finance is seeking um, flexibility in carrying some of that money, carrying the money over into the next financial period. Um, just to ask then on that, um, if, if that is successful, um, has it been planned within the Department for Communities? Are there any plans um, for that money and how it can be used? Um, if I go first on that, yes, there are, and we bid um, within um, as part of the 21-22 exercise for um, a number of different schemes, including the labour market interventions and the welfare staffing and for our um, other sectors that we support. Um, but those bids haven't, haven't been met at this point. Um, however, we are, we are continuing to work with uh, our DOF uh, colleagues to, to press for that funding for the department. Because we recognise at this point we've, we've um, had £270 million this year in our budget for COVID. Um, but as it stands in the draft budget, um, we're starting with zero for 21-22 for COVID-specific schemes. Okay, look, thank you um, for that as well, Gavin. I would love to be able to ask you lots of supplementaries around both of those, but I really am conscious that there are other members here who are waiting to ask questions. So I'd just remind members if they would do the same grace as well when they're asking questions. Um, so I'm going to go to Sinead, then Kelly, then Mark, then Andy. So Sinead. Thank you, Chair, um, and thanks to the officials. Listen, you know, I think we're in a very dire situation, um, and I think that we've been dealt a bad hand yet again by the British government uh, in the fact that the Department for Finance can only provide um, flat budgets to departments, uh, the fact that we still don't have multi-year budgets, um, and also the fact that we got the budget late. Uh, we're now seeing the outworkings of all those, those issues um, in the briefing. In terms of the labour market interventions, the fact that we didn't receive any, um, you know, is is inconceivable. Uh, as well, I know in, in, in the briefing there was a there was mention to staffing, um, and we're already sub the number of staff required uh, to effectively deal with social security. And when furlough ends, that number is going to rise, and it's going to have a massive impact. Um, Sheree, you talked about the quality impact. That's going to be huge on. Uh, vulnerable people, women, the elderly. So I suppose uh, and, and I don't really have a question, but I have a proposal. Um, and it's my understanding that the communities minister has written um, to the Department for Finance um, about the precarious situation that her budget, her, her department is facing in terms of the budget. Um, and I propose that this committee similarly write um, to the Department for Finance and support the minister uh, in her calls for additional funding. Yep, Sinead, I agree with that. That's that absolutely agree. Um, do, do, is it okay if we move on, Sinead, after that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for being brief as well. Kelly? Bring Kelly in, please. Kelly Armstrong. Sorry, Chair. I know um, I don't have um, control over my mute button. It's someone else. Um, I'll be very quick here. Um, Obviously, uh, there's a lot of pressure. This is horrendous budget. Um, and I'll be very honest, having worked with departments over over 20 years, I sincerely hope that this um, isn't an attempt to put pressure on everybody else to say that, that, that 
you know this department is under more pressure than anyone else um, I've had experience over the years of other departments um, playing that game um, but if this is honest to goodness the way things are sitting and that there hasn't been a discussion with the rest of the executive to share this out then this is very concerning um, what I would say is the current COVID funding um, if you're looking for suggestions can we ask the department to review the discretionary level of discretionary support and take the break off and the barriers so that people who are applying can actually get access to that um, money now when there's domestic crisis happening. Um, what I wanted to ask you about, there has been one particular one that I'm extremely concerned about in the unsuccessful bid so far, that the special rules for terminal illness, um, there doesn't appear to be any money going forward so that people who have been told that they're backtracked on to benefits. Um, can you just confirm if that's the case? Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about is this budget, horrendous as it currently stands, means that there's an awful lot of new decade, new approach um, projects that should be taken forward, Will I assume will not happen. For instance, the review of arm's length bodies. And I have to ask, whenever times are tight, we ask the community and voluntary sector to look internally to be as, as efficient as possible. What internal looks are happening within the department to ensure that all arm's length bodies and the department itself um, is, a, is as efficient as possible with its own costs. I appreciate that there has been problems with the recruitment for um, people to help handle all of the benefit inquiries. That will continue. But is every other part of the department as efficient as it could be? Because why should people on the front line, those people who are already in poverty, have to um, bear the brunt of this whenever the department could be sitting quite comfortable? Um, so I just want to ask also about if you could clarify the financial penalties that you've talked about coming from the Treasury with regards to the EMI spend and um, people with the unemployment schemes. Um, yes, Kel, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, in terms of town terminal illness, our Minister is absolutely committed to bringing forward proposals to change the six-month criterion for special rules. Um, we bid for £2 million to um, change that six-month criterion to six-month criterion. Um, our bid, as you know, it wasn't met. Um, our minister continues to lobby for the additional funding. And in the, ex in the absence of that funding um, uh, being forthcoming, the department is considering options on how it can meet that requirement. But that is, that is a, a recurring funding requirement every single year, because that is a payment we would have to make. And obviously, DWP... They were set to do this too. Their timetables have slipped or have slipped um, as a result of COVID. But our minister, I can give you assurance that she's still committed to bringing this forward. In terms of, um, you mentioned there about arm's length bodies and ensuring efficiencies, what, what are we doing? Right across the department, we are obviously now um, carrying out an urgent exercise to look at, at what potentially could be stopped, what could be paused, what could be done differently. Um, that will give uh, consideration right across the department, not just to the benefit areas of spend, but to, to all areas. That includes our arm's length bodies and it does include our programmes. However, I, I have to you know, say that anything we come up with, it's not going to be sufficient to meet the requirement that we need. We need um, £31 million, roughly. That's what we bid for to recruit an additional 900 staff to deliver um, universal credit. We don't, we don't have that those staff in place um, and even that that was that was a bit that went in at a point in time um, we have a very robust uh, resourcing system in place so that you know it's based on treasury methodology and how we resource your frontline business because um, it's measurable um, work um, we at the minute presently we need an, around about another 1200 staff to administer 
our current universal credit caseloads. We are only coping at the minute because um, of easements that have been put into the system by the Department of Work and Pensions. And that includes things like uh, the removal of face-to-face, -face, uh, um, uh, identity verification as well too. And that's also allowing us at the minute to put out 96% of new claims for universal credit within a five-week time period. Um, without having the additional staff, and whenever DWP, they're spending 1.4 billion and recruiting 27,000 additional staff. Whenever they secure those staff and they resume normal business, we won't keep pace. It could mean that we see our payment times for new claims slip to only 80 to 85% being done um, on time. And we could see the, the benefits move out to potentially a six to seven week time frame for people receiving the first claims for universal credit. And given that we see, or given that our unemployment is forecast to increase um, with furlough ending um, and further job losses being um, predicted, this will further in, impact on the department's ability to deliver benefits and maintain our statutory obligations. Thank you for that, sorry, Chair. Just to say that we are already seeing 13 week delays on people um, being provided their PIP awards. Um, mm -hmm. So, any further delays on that will just compound poverty across Northern Ireland. That's why I'm very keen that we're as lean and mean as we possibly can be to ensure that, that those who need to be on that front line are there. But um, mm -hmm. I'm very against we're having such a horrendous year coming forward, handing back any money should be, you know, a completely being worked on now to ensure that we don't hand back money for those people who are in poverty. Thank you, Chair. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Kelly. I have Mark, then of Andy and of Alex. So still three more members that want to ask questions and we have about ten minutes. So everybody, including um yourselves, Jerry and Gavin, directly please to the point. Um Mark, go ahead. Thanks, Chair. Hi, hi, folks. I think Deirdre, who was on for, for the last evidence session, she was the bearer of bad news. You guys were the bearer of a, a complete uh, bombshell. Uh, I, I would kind of concur with Kelly's experience and analysis. It's not uncommon for departments to put on the poor mouth at, at, at this stage and come forward with the worst-case scenario, but this is a bloody doomsday uh, scenario. And I, I, when, I hope it's not a cynical uh, negotiating tactic. I hope even more uh, that, it, regardless of that, it's already causing distress to many. I know people working in the advice sector have been contacting me uh, overnight about this, concerned not only about their own uh, employment going forward, but the impact that this will have on their service users and the people that they support. It really doesn't get any starker than this. I'll, I'll quote one bit from the, the paper there. It's, we will be the only region on these islands that will not be adequately resourced to support people who face unemployment in the biggest economic crisis faced in our lifetime. So we're, we're shocked, I'm sure, by the decision around the independent advice sector. And, and, and that really, really, really does need addressed. And I'm sure everyone will uh, support calls to do so. Likewise, on the recruitment plans, they weren't important only to deal with the increased claimants, the, the huge increase in claimants, the numbers more than doubling, but to create, but to create jobs and to help reduce pressure on the benefit system. You know, I was just wondering how many new staff have been recruited since we were informed of the plan to recruit men in hundred. What's the latest with that? I know we appreciate you said it's going to be scaled back. How far is it going to be scaled back? Uh, also, just the Minister confirmed in an answer to me that the Department's looking at extending the contract with Capita to run PIP assessments for another two years beyond the original 
or July end date, I was wondering how much that contract's worth and has money been allocated uh, for in the budget. Uh, in terms of the new decade, new approach stuff, and in particular, the bids for welfare mitigations, many have been asking for updates and, and more importantly, action on new welfare mitigations for a year now. Uh, the last update we received was the bids for the bedroom tax loophole, the benefit cap, and the two-child policy had been halved because of a delay in introducing legislation. But are we now to understand that these mitigations won't be introduced at all? And does the £42 million set aside for benefit cap and bedroom tax include closing the, cur the current loopholes? And then just finally, in, in terms of the, the capital bid, and I know only maybe two-thirds of it has been met, is there a capital bid uh, for Casement? I know there's a recurring cost in there for, for casement, but is there a capital cost? Was there a capital bid? Is that being met? Okay, Mark, um, I, I'll take the, the first few and I'll pass over to Gavin then for capital. So okay. in terms of the numbers recruited, um, there was an initial recruitment exercise launched in October, and that exercise was aimed at bringing in an additional 900 staff um, uh, plus more, there was, there was, we were also to plan to fill our existing vacancies. That exercise has allowed 155 staff to be brought into the department, but those staff are filling existing vacancies, they're not additional staff. Um, as a result um, of the fact that we've received um, no confirmation on the funding to ensure that we will be able to pay staff salaries in the next financial year, that recruitment has now been paused. Uh, it does mean there's going to be an impact on benefit delivery, but also, too, we have to consider there's going to be a significant impact on our staff. We already have staff within the department that are dealing with significant increases in workloads. Uh -huh. It's going to put them under further pressure, and we could see increased levels of both stress and staff sicknesses. Um, in terms of, um, you mentioned there about the extension of the capital contract, that funding was available within the department's existing budget baseline for the 21 for the for the current financial year, and that will continue in the next financial year. Um, costs are, are running similar. And then, Mark, as well, right. you mentioned. Right. Do, do we know will the contract continue or just the funding for it? It hasn't been decided that the contract will be extended, has it? They they will be looking at contract extension. Okay, thanks. Um, in terms then of, you mentioned there about new, new um, existing mitigation, so there was a commitment in the new decade, new approach um, agreement um, that committed to an urgent review of our welfare mitigations. Our minister is fully committed to taking forward that review. Um, that review will look at the need, um, obviously, for further mitigations and will bring forward a costed future prioritised mitigation package. We bid for the funding to deliver that in the 2021-22 financial year. That bid hasn't been met. However, when those cost of proposals are available, they, they would need to go to the executive for further funding. In terms of the funding that we have been provided for um, existing mitigations, um, that, that obviously has been received in the current financial year. So we bid for £42.8 million. Um, our allocation includes £23 million for rough social sector size criteria. There's £5.5 million in there for benefit cap. And there's around about £10 million in for disability benefits. And it does include funding for closing um, the, the loopholes in the current legislation. 
I'll, I'll now pass over to Gavin on the case Thank inquiry. Thank okay, maybe just to, to cover off the, the point you made at the start, Mark, and just to reassure the committee, we, we aren't rolling out uh, the bleeding stumps on, on these. Um, we've obviously carried out the EKA, and um, they are un, unfunded pressures, the labour market interventions and the staffing and the advice sector, as you also mentioned, Mark. Um, we're fully aware of the impact that, that they will have, um, and, and they are unfunded pressures. Um, on the advice sector, we're, we're obviously looking internally and, and continuing discussions with DOF as to as to how that funding can, can be found to maintain that uh, much needed service. Uh, in relation to casement, uh, as, as part of the, the information gathering exercise in September, uh, as, which kicked off the whole budget 21-22 um, process, um, we identified a potential need of £20 million for casement. Uh, that doesn't mean that as part of the overall funding that we've now received that it's uh, that it is £20 million for casement, because as I'm sure you're aware, there's still work ongoing um, to uh, to take forward and, and to obtain the planning permission uh, to actually get the work on the ground. But we did identify £20 million at that point. That will be a reassessed um, as for the actual need. Um, as uh, my colleagues work with uh, GAA uh, through their development of the, the draft full business case. Okay, so just one final one on casement. Given, I suppose, the context in which funding was originally or initially approved for casement for winter and uh, Ravenhill or Kingspan as it is now, that was done prior to the awarding of planning permission for, for either of those projects. Is therefore uh, the success of any bid now dependent on planning permission having been granted? Um, well, there obviously will be further discussions, and it has been highlighted that costs have increased given the time frame that has passed since the original um, monies identified of the, the sixty-two million. Um, so, what needs to be developed now is a full business case uh, to, to actually identify the full need for that project, and then further discussions will be taken forward. Okay, thanks, Gavin. Thank you. Thanks, Shreve. Right. Okay, okay, thanks for that, Mark. Look, members, at this stage we have seven minutes left and still got to get through the rest of our committee brief. Now, not that there's too much left. What I want to propose is that we ask um, Cherry and Gavin to come back next week to our meeting as our first witness session at quarter past nine. They'll not have to hang around because they have been hanging on the phone for an hour before they even got on to us. We'll take them first and the, the first people to ask questions will be Andy and Alex. If that's okay, could we do if, if they're in agreement to that next week? Can I just pick one question? Just very, I, very quickly, Andy. Just, uh, Gavin, just on casement, uh, the budget exercise, the, the total amount that the department's envisaging for casement over that, that period, what, what, what is that in, in terms of capital? In 21-22, or right across or, the period, the, the three-four-year period, uh, what is the well, total amount that the department has envisaged for casement, up in addition to the 62 million? Well, that's what's being worked through in the full business case. So that that total amount has to be clarified still, and that works ongoing. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, but the department run a budget exercise. In that budget uh, exercise, what have have the department forecast uh, for casement? Uh, let me just pull it up. So, um, so over on, on a, 
Uh, Stress again, that was a, a forecast at the time uh, on part of the budget um, development. So um, over the four years, um, there was um, hundred and uh, 102 million. So 102 million, uh, that's 40 million in addition to the, the 62 million previously uh, allocated onto the regional stadia programme. So I know you're giving me the evils possibly here, sure I can't see you, but uh, 100, it's 40 million in addition, uh, and that's, and then there's 15 million coming from the GAA in respect to this, so as part of that regional uh, stadia, we're, the public parish could be expected to fork out 102 million on the department's forecast, and I appreciate, obviously, it's subject to the full business case, but the department has forecast an expenditure of public purse, 102 million pounds over the four-year period. It was an estimated need as part of that information gathering exercise. Again, I'll stress the full business case needs to be developed to work out the actual forecasted cost. But that, that, that was what we had uh, highlighted at that stage back in August, September. But back in August, September, obviously, the department was working on details. You just didn't pluck this figure out of the sky. You were obviously no. working on parameters, details, information, data, whatever you were using to come up with this figure. This isn't the figure you've just conjured up. No, it wasn't. Um, uh, it was an estimate at that point on the information held at that point, but so, the full business case still needs to be developed. So there, there is an expectation the case could end up costing, uh, subject to approval, uh, the, the public purse £102 million. Pounds. That was, was the estimate in September. Again, we need the full business case to develop. It could come down. Yeah, and sure, look, I'm very keen to pick up the other points uh, next week because there's as Mark pointed out, bombshell start. We could use all sorts of different uh, words to describe the budget. Uh, number of concerns, especially around universal credit, terminal illness, etc. But I'll leave it there, Chair. And yeah. thanks for indulging me. No, you're you're very welcome, Andy. And I'm going to ask the same of of Alex. Would he? Uh, well, there, you have no choice actually at this stage because I now have. Four minutes left to complete the meeting, <laughs> so I do. Um, so um, thank you very much, uh, Cherry Ann Gavin, and uh, I will. Uh, yeah, we will have you back next week, and we promise you we'll take you first, and you'll not be hanging around for hours waiting on us. And that way, um, members can then continue with what is really important. And uh, I mean, we should have given more time to it today, but sadly, we didn't have that time. So thank you. I'm going to move yeah. on. Okay. Sure, thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and thank you to Andy and Alex as well for understanding that too, that we need to move on. Right, what number are we on, folks? Correspondent 12. Correspondent 12. 18. Right, thank you. Bear with me. <laughs> OK. Correspondence item number 12. So, members, you'll find the correspondence memo at page 59 of your meeting pack. I just have two items I want to draw to your attention. The first one is a, a letter from the Arts Collaboration Network um, who wish to brief us on their report on the culture beyond COVID. Um, some of us were in the new APG that was, has been formed in the arts and we heard from them there. Um, can I just say that, can we put that down, if members are agreed, that we are looking at our next stakeholder event is going to be COVID recovery. So can we ask that they come in then to the stakeholder event and brief us, agreed? Mm -hmm. Great, good stuff, thank you. The next one, members, is a letter from the Regional Secretary of the National Association of Councillors, um, who's requested to brief the Committee on Councillors' Issues, Concerns and Wellbeing. Um, I very much will want, I do want to hear from them, but at this stage, can I just seek um, your permission to ask for a written briefing? 
from them first and foremost, uh, because I'm sure at some stage in the not too distant future we will be hearing from SOLAS as well. So I think we do need to hear from the National Association of Councillors um, at the stage whenever we're ready um, to get uh, the, those other evidence sessions. Member agreed, but we'll get a written briefing first. Yeah, agreed? Okay, yep, good. Thank you. Um, and they're going to ask any other member have anything they want to very, 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 very quickly bring up under correspondence. Are they happy to note the correspondence memo? Happy to note. Happy to note. Okay, thank you. Then members, item third, agenda third, item thirteen, forward work program. Um, at our meeting um, on the fourth of February next week, we will be briefed by the following organisations in relation to the licensing and registration of clubs and membership bill. We'll have the Presbyterian and Methodist churches, which is a joint briefing. We'll have Retail NI. We'll have the Northern Ireland Strengths Industry Group and Copeland Distillery. And of course, now we've got on the agenda also a briefing again um, on the budget, which we hope to take first. Um, any comments on agenda item thirteen? Happy to note. Yep, so noted. Good. Then we're going to move on very quickly to agenda item 14, which is any other relevant business. Do members have any AOB they need to bring up at this stage or cannot wait until next week? All okay? Yep, go Paul, Greg. Can I quickly? Paul, oh, sorry, just to say there's a bit of a problem here today with Starleaf. Um, I keep on being muted and not able to intervene. Um, earlier on when I was waving my hand, I did want us to ask a question of the department to ask them for a timeline on when they knew the information about um, Job Start. Um, but there, there's an issue about when it goes to a wide meeting room that there, it's cutting out those of us or cutting out us being able to speak remotely. Okay, well then we will we'll look at that, Kelly, because we that, that is uh, I know it maybe is happening in other committees as well, so we'll have a look at that. Um, okay, I'm going to move then swiftly on to agenda item 15, which is date, time, and location of our next meeting. Members, our next meeting will take place here in room 29 next Thursday, the 4th of February, February again at 9:15 a.m. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29.